but a huge thing with mental illness is to be able to empathize with someone that's suffering with something that you don't have and to be able to understand it and to be able to validate their feelings and their emotions and that's what these support groups do you're listening to find the good news episode 58 the poured heart featuring chance savant Find the Good News is produced by Parker Brand Creative Services, a branding agency that thinks sideways, pushes forward, and gets your brand up. See what else we do at parkerbrandup.com. Welcome to Find the Good News. This show about good people doing good works has been picking up listeners from the East Coast to the West Coast and many places in between. This show is produced in the heel of the Louisiana boot. From a bird's eye view, it's just about as close to the Gulf as you can get. Whatever your perception is of the Gulf Coast, or the Dirty South as some like to call it, you can throw all of that out the window. Find the Good News serves as a reminder that good people are working together to help each other across lines of religion and politics, serving people in large and small ways. While this show's pushpin may seem to be right at the mouth of the Gulf, We're widening our circles to bring you stories of real folks on the front lines in all of our communities. If you're new to this pod, keep listening and you'll find the good news no matter what mainstream media sources may be saying. This episode features Chance Savant, a representative of NAMI, Southwest Louisiana. Chance, like good newsies before him, is open and honest about living with anxiety and depression. I felt very comfortable speaking with Chance, and I appreciate him stopping by to enlighten me on NAMI's services and to share the intimate details of his story. Next week is wild. First, I get to interview Shelly Johnson, the former executive director of the Southwest Louisiana Convention and Visitors Bureau. Shelly retired this year after over 30 years of service and a list of milestone accomplishments that will probably blow your mind. I've worked with her in various capacities for over a decade, but this will be the first time I've been able to sit down and visit with her outside of the professional arena, and I'm really looking forward to that. October 3rd marks the one-year anniversary of Find the Good News. I've asked the Good Newsies with the top five downloads and listens this past year to come back for a very special anniversary mixtape episode. I'm really excited to have Tony Bork, Diana Vallette, Bruce Plochet, Amanda Yellett, and Carrie Hankins together at the right round table for this mixtape. If you listened to the last mixtape episode, then you know there's a really special dynamic when good newsies get together. Keep your ears open and your eyes peeled. If you want to meet these folks before the mixtape comes out next week, check out their episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. Next Thursday, we're having a new live episode of Find the Good News. My co-host for this episode is Good Newsy Tom Trahan of the Brimstone Museum, and will be visiting with Patrick Bennett of the Lake Charles Film Festival. Patrick also coordinates the Calcasieu Parish Short Film Festival, Calcasieu Serial Fest, and the 48-hour film sprints that take place in our area each year. If you're into indie films, then you'll really enjoy this one. Make sure to get the Mixler app before the show so you can join the live chat with other listeners. That's at Mixler.com, M-I-X-L-R.com. And stick around and play the live wire challenge with the lightning round with Patrick. Man, that's a lot of good stuff, but that's not the good news you tuned in for. So let's zero in on the truth. Shut out the naysayers for just a little while. Make a mental runway for some personal stories. And press play on a little good news. Openness, truth, honesty, the best stories are made up of these things. And that's the holy trinity of what makes Find the Good News so unique. Each guest has come in here with their openness, truth, and honesty. And for those affiliated with programs, groups, 
businesses, or nonprofits, their truth is tightly wound within the essence of their affiliation. I don't say this lightly. I've seen it over and over again with individuals that have come to the right round table. I witnessed it again when Chance Savant, a representative of NAMI Southwest Louisiana, came to visit me on Find the Good News. As can often be the case, the plans we make are superseded by the natural momentum that forms when time and actions march on. Chance coming in to talk about NAMI almost one year later reminded me that making space for something to happen increases the odds of its occurrence. NAMI Southwest Louisiana is an incredible resource for individuals and families that live with mental illness, providing information, resources, and peer-led groups. For some with mental illness, NAMI Southwest Louisiana can often offer assistance with housing and some medications. Most importantly, NAMI Southwest Louisiana creates a safe space for people with mental illness to be heard. Being heard, as Chance shared, is often the first step on the road to living a whole and happy life. While we did talk about NAMI, it was Chance's personal testimony that opened the shutters and let the light in. This young man took me to periods in his life where depression and anxiety firmly gripped his day to day. On this journey, he showed me the healthy way out, the value of presence, deep listening, and reminded me of the healing power of personal sharing. He opened his heart to me and to you, and in pouring out his truth, his words can bring solace to others. This is the great medicine of telling our stories. This is the healing hope of finding and sharing the good news. Wake up, it's morning. You're dreaming up a story I can hear The way it's going Cause you're laughing in your sleep On the path to your deliverance And a holy wall of light Pouring through your window Old news, bad news, fake news Sometimes you just want to shut it all down And get no news at all With Find the Good News, I aim to change that by focusing on good people doing good work. I visit with artists, educators, civic and spiritual leaders, musicians, business owners, students, volunteers, and everyday citizens who are using their creativity, resources, and talents to bring hope and happiness to their corner of the world. In each episode, I dig into the hearts and minds of my extraordinary guests. We have street-level conversations about relatable things going on in their lives, discover the critical life experiences that shape them, the perspectives that drive them, and the fundamental beliefs that are anchoring them to a path of goodness. There's a lot of news in the world. My name is Orrin Parker, and I'm going to find the good. And I love you just. Your name's Chance Savant, right? Yes, sir. And you're with NAMI Southwest Louisiana? Yes, sir. So, I don't know a whole lot about NAMI, but I'll just tell you, uh, I love to kind of start the show sometimes off with what I think I know. And and I do that because I think sometimes that it's like what maybe the common person does know. If we're not going and doing the research and we've heard of an organization... You know, not everyone just stops and goes, let me go check that out and go to their website and read every page and, yeah. and do the whole full dive. Uh, and a lot of times we don't seek that information out until something happens, right? Completely. And so that was kind of my, uh, full disclosure, that was kind of my experience with NAMI. I had seen the name NAMI and heard it, but I had honestly no idea what it was. Uh, and then we had something happen in our family where, 
you know, immediately you're going, okay, what what resources are out there, right? And so NAMI was one of those things that somebody put in front of us. And so at that point, I started looking into it and trying to understand what it was and get my arms around it a little bit. But just for those people that are like me that don't know what NAMI is, what it stands for, can you tell us about that? So NAMI stands for the National Alliance for Mental Illness. It was founded in 1979 in Madison, Wisconsin. It originally started with about 200 participants, and now it's the largest grassrooted local nonprofit in the nation. Oh, really? I think we have almost over 1,200 affiliates around the country, and then a couple outside of the country as well. Really? So how long has the, the, the branch, I'm assuming, or the what would you call the one in Lake Charles? Is that uh, you know? Affiliate. Affiliate? Okay. So how long has the affiliate in Lake Charles been in place? So it's been in here about... Almost, I want to say like 20 years. 20 years. It's been under uh, a couple of different directors. Right now, our executive director is Miss Lolita Caesar. Okay. And um, she's been having it for about five years now. Okay. So you hear a name like that, NAMI, and then what you just said NAMI is. How how does that affect the average person? What is NAMI's role in the place in a community like Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana? So NAMI lives for our mission, which is to support, advocate, and educate anyone personally affected with mental illnesses and their family. So all of our programs are free and we have a office right behind Wendy's on Lake Street. And it's basically just we're at the aid of the community. We okay. lead programs for mental illness and we help people know the warning signs of every mental illness. Okay. We do support groups for them. We do presentations in the schools and the hospitals in inpatient and outpatient uh, crisis centers. We also do a lot of uh, like individual events. So we have our candlelight vigil once a year which is just a vigil where we mourn uh, people who have completed uh, suicide. Okay. And we also do our membership dinner, and then we do our annual walk, which are just our kind of ways to get, like, give back to the community because for the last year, for those years that we've been doing that, people come to us needing aid and, like, you know, needing a place to talk. And we're not a place that's going to give you advice. Okay. Because we're not, none of us are psychiatrists, but we're here to support you. I see. Okay. And most of us that work there, we do live with mental illness or have a family member that does. Okay. So that's that's the one thing that I, and I think that was my initial misconception that I wasn't aware. I thought, you know, again, when you're in crisis mode, when you have a family member that's dealing with mental illness and, and have perhaps attempted a suicide, um, it's kind of like a bomb goes off, you know, and there's just sort of these different uh, shrapnel it gets in everybody and it's everybody's different depending on where they're standing when that happens. And I don't mean literally where they're standing, maybe sometimes literally where they're standing, but wherever they're at in their own life, where they might be logistically, um, geography, geographically, where their own mental health is when something, when somebody else's mental health is, uh, taking a dive really, sure. you know, it starts to affect everybody differently. I've seen that in my own family, you know, my, my children, my wife and I have all been affected differently. And so you, you're in a crisis mode, right? And I don't know how everybody else's story is, but that's kind of how our, ours was. It's just that like you sort of hit this crisis point and you're just, you're looking around for help going, I don't know what's going on. I don't know how to do this. I don't know what I need. I don't know what the next step is. And so you sort of just ride the wave. Right. Yes, sir. And so you hear something like NAMI. My misconception was that I was going to go there to get counseling for somebody. And so um, 
not that I even knew that was what they needed immediately. You really just don't know. What I what I guess I'm hearing is that Nami's actually a great first step because you guys kind of just go first. We're just here to support you. Yes. That's the easiest thing we can do right out the gate. And then second, we can possibly direct you based on whatever your particular mental illness may be. Does that sound about right? That is exactly correct. We um we get a lot of people that come in one wanting referrals from us. Okay. And I always have to like remind people that like we're not a doctor's office, but like we have all the resources, all the clinics, all the psychiatrists, like we have booklets that we give out to people that when they ask that, that they can go and find them because like we're not, um, there's no psychiatrist in our office, so we can't give out those referrals. But right. what we can do is invite you to these groups that are peer to peer led by people but they're always one person that is affected by mental illness and then someone who's a family member that has a mental illness. I see. So, and these groups are just where like you meet, we usually meet like once a month for one of them and then twice a month for the other. And it's our peer to peer and our family to family. So it's basically just, you come in, you get some snacks, you get something to drink and you just sit down and you tell us how your week's been. And then the facilitators kind of like guide the conversation from the back of the room by letting everyone else in the room just open up and share their story and that's how you gain like perspective of living with mental illness and like having that having help for your family members that has mental illness as well yeah i so that that just touches such a nerve for me because it, it sounds like what you're saying or at least what you're between the lines of what you're saying is that talking to other people that are kind of have been through what you're going through potentially or some version of it or who at least uh, have some compassion to understand what you're going through is helpful to the part to the other people right oh completely people have changed perspectives all the times and then it's like so it's one of the like we read these guidelines before every support group and the biggest one is like to work on empathy and that's Mm. like the hugest thing with mental illness is to be able to empathize with someone that's suffering with something that you don't have and to be able to understand it and to be able to validate their feelings and their emotions and that's what these support groups do and it shows because a lot of it let's take it from a viewpoint of someone that just comes to one of our groups because let's say their brother has a mental illness okay like they're not going to be able to understand that person's viewpoint or what they're feeling or even want to validate their emotions but if someone else is in that group, another man is in that group whose brother is also struggling, they can see like from firsthand experience that this is effective, that this can change. And it, when you have mental illness, it doesn't just affect you. Like mm. you had said previously, it affects everyone around you. Like you said, it is kind of like that bomb that, that shrapnel just goes everywhere. Yeah. And um, sometimes when mental illness isn't taken care of properly, it can really explode and it can really hurt those around you and leaving leave your loved one just wondering why and leave them pretty much empty longing for you know that heart and so just shared empathy is just so important with mental illness because no one wants to tell their stories no one wants to explain why their brain is making them sad today no one wants to understand that like no one's going to understand that unless you feel that as well so being able to sit around these groups of people and just hear them share their hearts really moves people that have that kind of like wall up to the situation don't really want to like get to know or like empathize with people and um it really does like move mountains with some people yeah you know i I, on one hand i um 
I feel so ignorant sometimes when I look back at the last decade or so, because I see that there were all these signs there that I just didn't know were signs, right? Like picky eating. I know that seems so silly maybe to somebody that says, oh, my kid's a picky eater. But I can look back at the last, you know, 10 to 15 years and I can see those early seeds of mental illness, types of mental illnesses developing and sort of appearing as things that we think are just normal. And, you know, when you string it all together over time, I mean, it's a little bit of detective work, but you start to go, wow, it was all there. I just didn't know because I was just told by everybody else in the world that this is just normal behavior. This is yeah. just a thing. They'll outgrow it. But then instead of outgrowing these traits, they become other things. They sort of evolve. And I mean, I hate to say it like this. They're almost like uh, cancerous. They multiply and they, they spread out and get into other activities and behaviors. And you're like, wow. Oh, oh, no. You know, a decade passes and you're like picky eating has turned into this whole other thing that's really destructive. And you don't know where it's coming from. Yeah, completely. You know, but but on the flip, I don't know where I was going with that, but I was, uh, this is probably a strange segue, but I was really realizing how much things have changed as far as awareness goes. Just watching uh, the movie Iron Man 3 the other day with my son when we were watching it and I, I've seen it before, but I guess it had been a lot of years and we've had a lot happen. Mm-hmm since I had originally watched that and I was watching the character Tony Stark have um it was about he was having anxiety attacks and I was w- watching that movie with a whole new set of eyes I was like wow they put this in this movie the main character is having panic attacks and he's triggered and it's causing all these problems and he doesn't know what's happening you know nobody else knows what's going on they see his behavior as just oh this is the way he is but these are driven by these panic attacks and these fears that he has and i thought that was kind of honestly good in a way because i was like hey this is sort of mainstreaming something that a lot of people didn't know really how to wrap their arms around it Mm -hmm. you know and just anxiety in general there's a lot more even in that department to me, it seems like there's a lot more open conversation about it. There is a lot more open conversation. I have um, I've noticed from growing up with anxiety and kind of being in that situation from a very young age. I remember going to the doctor when I was a sophomore because that was the first time I just couldn't function with my anxiety. And really? it got to the point where I was not eating and like my parents were kind of like calling me out on it. They're like, what is wrong with you? Because uh-huh. I also am a very picky eater. Oh, really? Okay. And um, so, but it was to the point where like I was locking myself in my room. I, I'm a very social, outgoing, extroverted person. So I had in the summertime and I was not spending any quality time with my friends or my family. And so my parents just kind of like sat me down there like, what's what's going on? Like, just talk to us. And I told them and I like, of course, I like broke down in tears because I didn't really know how to explain it. I was like, I don't really know what's going on. Like, I can't even validate my own emotions or my feelings right now. Mm. And they took me to a doctor or family nurse practitioner. And instead of like giving me anxiety medicine, they put me on Adderall. Ah. And I remember my mom got really upset because she knew like I do have ADHD, but like that's. I've been I've known that since I was little. I've always struggled with concentration. But when they only wanted to treat me for with Adderall, my parents got really upset because they're like obviously this isn't going to help. Like his brain's moving so fast. He stays up all night just like on the brink of tears. I have panic attacks, I have anxiety attacks. And um I remember from there I didn't get on my Adderall at that time, but I remember just like knowing that I walked out of there as a going to be a sophomore in high school that like this was going to be something that I struggled with on my own for the rest of my life. That really? Was, yeah. And it, it kind of 
drove this big like deep pit into mm. myself of like hatred of my mental illness just because like the lack of like actual resources that were there this was like what? 2010 okay so. i was gonna ask when that was okay and it just like it shocked me and it shocked my parents as well and i remember i just kind of left that uh doctor's office and i didn't talk about my mental illness for another 10 years wow you know, it is. It's interesting because I think I have anxiety, too. And, and you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I didn't know what we were gonna, exactly how we were, this conversation was going to go. But I think this is probably an important topic to talk about, just anxiety in general, because so many people deal with it. And it takes so many different forms. And I have anxiety. And I talk about it kind of openly on this show, the, the way it has sort of manifested in my life. It's very much social anxiety. I mean, I... I'll talk as candidly as I can because maybe there's value in it for somebody else. But, you know, I was just telling my wife this uh, the other day, trying to give her examples. I had a a um, business after hours thing to go to. All the signs or all the triggers are there for me in a business after hours. You know, here we are, you and I, one-on-one. I'm 100% comfortable, right? For sure. I feel fine. I mean, my heart rate's low. I feel relaxed. I feel at peace. My, my thoughts are really clear. But just knowing I had to go to that business after hours thing, that whole day, the the closer it got to that, I could just, my blood pressure went up, my pulse was higher, my heart rate was up. I felt, I, the way I described it to her, I said, is that I feel like my, the inside of me is like my, I'm making a fist with my insides. And if I could, if that's a, like I'm holding on, I don't want to drop something. And so get right up to it i have to change into my clothes and as i'm you know even putting on a different like a a sports coat and a nicer shirt every action i am taking is a signal to my brain to be afraid and Mm -hmm. i don't even know why and i mean i just you know my stomach turns to soup uh start sweating and then my thoughts start to change. Then I start to feel like I don't want to go. Maybe I can get out of it. Maybe something will come up. It's all these just erratic, like beehive of thoughts. The only difference between now and 10 years ago is that now I know what's happening mm-hmm. and I know what's causing it. And just cause I know I would think, Oh, it's going to make it stop. It doesn't stop. You know? So I go to the event and I know how it is with this anxiety. Now it's going to take me 20 minutes. I mean, I'm, I'm holding my breath. I feel like I'm in a astronaut suit and everybody else is like normal, but I'm like, just like, I can hear my own breath inside the helmet kind of feeling and everything's in slow motion, you know, and the way I described it to my wife is that it's like, when I'm having anxiety like that, everything seems like it's really fast to me, um, versus the norm. I said, time changes almost. I can't like it goes by in a split second, but it's all this stuff jammed into those short moments of time. So I get to the event and I know, and it did went exactly how, as it always does. I'm holding my breath. I'm trying to act normal. So nobody sees I'm sweating like crazy. Mm-hmm. And I calm down. Once I get into a conversation is the minute someone engages me in not, not chatter like, Hey, how's it going? How you been? How's business been busy? How's the weather? Actual conversation like you and I are having. And that happened at that event. I found a guy. He started telling me stories about his life as it, you know, and what he did professionally and about his daddy. And then I just listened to him and I calmed down all that. 
I got cool again. My heart rate went down and it was fine. It was totally fine. But, but what causes it? I don't know. I've been dealing with it my whole life. And so I guess, you know, I, I tell that story because I see anxiety in other people manifest in a whole nother way because of a whole nother reason. And I think we're all maybe walking around with some little, some of that in us to some degree. I think everyone struggles with anxiety. Yeah, I think so. On different levels, there's things that are triggering. And a lot of times I think we just don't know what it is. We're not calling it anxiety. We're just calling it nerves, my nerves, I'm anxiousness. nervous, anxiousness. Yeah. How was that for you? I mean, so you 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 see this happening. You you may you've got this decision where you're going, well, I'm just going to live with this. And now you've almost and I won't use this word demonized it, right? Now it's an entity. Your anxiety is I know that's how what I've heard a lot of people say. They go, "It's my anxiety, like it's a devil on your shoulder." Mm-hmm. Does it feel like that? Did it did it feel like that? Oh, 100%. Um I'm still affected every day. I have about two anxiety attacks per day. Yeah. And it can just be, it can range from waking up in like a very anxious state and just like waiting for like my heart rate to just jump up. And then like, like you said, like to start sweating and then to get very uncomfortable. Or it can just be me sitting down watching Netflix with my friends and something goes off in my brain with a very like negative thought and I'm triggered instantly. And, but I've learned great coping mechanisms and I wanted to jump back to what you said about how when you jumped in that conversation with someone I, I struggle as saying like everything you were saying was like spot on for like when I was really deep into my mental illness and not getting the right proper care in college and uh, I also had a lot of social anxiety to the point where I miss multiple of my really good friends weddings because mm. I just couldn't get out of the house and um, it's just that moment that someone confronts you and they show that they're present with you and it's a genuine conversation it just snaps you out and one of my number one coping mechanisms is my friends and my family it's to get in my car and drive to someone that's available and free as soon as possible just to talk like i don't want to talk about what i'm feeling i don't want to talk about my anxiousness i just want to hang out i just want to be yeah. present with someone and have that genuine authentic conversation and know that like someone is listening to me so that like i can get out of my mind just for a split second because that split second gives me so much relief that i can carry on for another day yeah and um there's just i use a lot a lot of coping mechanisms that i had to learn on my own really so the, what are, I mean, those coping mechanisms, sometimes they're healthy and sometimes they're not healthy. Right. I mean, I've got those things, too, because I, I can relate to what you said about avoiding things. I mean, I've told stories about this different. It's different versions of the same thing. It's I get to something. I'm uncomfortable. I feel like I'm I feel like I'm boxed in rat in the cage. Got to get out and I will find a way mm-hmm. or about, not not as much anymore. But back then I would find a way to get out of it if i could get out of that room and get off on my own and just get away for me that would that was the beginning of cooling out was just getting away from whatever was triggering it but the conversation like you said it's so important and my daughter she has terrible anxiety and she said the same thing because i don't she loves to draw and she said sometimes i just want somebody to come over when i'm doing this and i can just draw they don't have to talk to me it's the presence of the person just being with me and allowing me to get out of this headspace that I've got myself cycled into. It's not being alone. Not being alone. Okay, so that jumps into like another thing, which is an anxiety, but it's depression, right? Those things are married together. So how does anxiety and depression, you know, feed? They feed each other. So I also suffer with depressive disorder. Um, when I was in college, sophomore year. 
I had uh, just transferred from LSU to McNeese to finish my degree. And I moved to Lake Charles. And I had been pretty active growing up in Lake Charles. was very involved with youth ministry and like going to church retreats. Right. So I had a lot of friends at McNeese. So I jumped into McNeese, got involved with Newman, like quit my job and then just like focused on school for about a year just to get like the wrap of it. And then I got a new job and it kind of forced me to separate like a lot of my social life. And that caused me to go into a very, very, very dark place. Really? And it was to the point where like I was struggling with depression and a lot of anxiety and they were hand in hand. It was just like I was getting punched in the face like yeah. constantly over and over again. I completely isolated myself from my friends. Mm. I lost very, very close, like lifelong friends that I've had since I was in pre-K because of my like lack of like desire to spend time with people or just at all leave the house. Yeah. Also found some very negative coping mechanisms in that state of my life that I thought were working at the time, but they weren't. Binge watching Netflix is not a coping mechanism. It is very bad, especially if you're someone as extroverted as I am. But I really struggled with my both of my mental illness at that time because I didn't know I was depressed. Mm. I thought I was just anxious. I yeah. thought like these negative and sad thoughts were just, you know, my anxiety just coming back that I was stressed because I was really into my degree and that I was working a lot, but I didn't, and it was kind of silly because at the time I was going, my undergrad is in sociology concentrated with family and child studies. So I was kind of like in the mix of just knowing everything about mental illness and I was not putting two and two together. And it wasn't until I was going to visit one of my friends that lived in Sulphur at the time and I was coming over to 10 and I was like, and I like my stomach kind of like growled like I was hungry and I was yeah. like, man, I'm hungry. Like, that's odd. Yeah. And then like, I was just, this thought like went off in my head. They're like, you haven't eaten like three days. Wow. And I was like, oh, wow. wow. I was like, so I whipped it into canes as soon as I got sulfur and I got some food. And then as soon as I like ordered my food and I got my food, I lost my appetite. Huh. And I just started like, and I remember I pulled over and I just started crying because I had realized like that was when it hit me that I was like really, really depressed. And yeah. I had been in that state for about a year at that time. That's interesting. And I didn't get out of that state for another year because I didn't ask for the help I needed. I didn't want to be some weak. I didn't want it to be seen as weak because that's what I was thinking. Mm. And I didn't even know how to like, I didn't even know how to separate my thoughts. Like it was just so like so much mushed up thoughts in there and they're all negative that like I didn't even know how. I was like, how could I go to a therapist when I don't even know what I'm feeling? Like I can't even express my thoughts right now. I'm in so much like just I, I always would tell my friends that like I just felt blah. Yeah. Like very melancholy, but like at the same time there's sad thoughts just racing in the back of my mind constantly. And I finally did get the help I needed. I did go to that therapist and I did get to express my emotions and I did get on my antidepressants. But the whole time, I remember it was just, I'd like wake up and I would like instantly just be like sad. Like mm -hmm. I would just, I would literally just wake up, go brush my teeth, put deodorant on, get ready for the day. And I was already like, ugh. Right at the beginning. Why did I wake up this morning? Like just like why? Like I, it got to the point where like my faith has been a big part of my life, but it got to the point where like every night I would pray to God, like you need to take my life before I took my own. Like yeah. I just couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. And, um. It, like, took a lot for me to, like, know, like, how to separate my depression and my anxiety because 
depression is not really like your thoughts it's your feelings mm-hmm. whereas like my anxiety mostly affects my thoughts and it does affect my feelings but my depression had complete control over my feelings it had that sadness yeah it had that grief but i wasn't even mourning it had that like emptiness had that blah that melancholy but my thoughts were i was not good enough i needed to drop out of school i needed to like move back home i wasn't going to make it like my friends didn't actually care about me i didn't yeah. even care about myself and so I didn't, like, I hate how long it took me to just realize and get the help I needed. You know, man, I mean, I'm listening to you say all of that, and I hope other people are listening, too, that that are have went through that and maybe are going through that because that you're, you're talking about something that I think we all maybe don't take enough. And, again, I'm blanket everybody everywhere saying we all, but how often do people really stop and think, and I'm using the word think, <laughs> the difference between their thoughts and their feelings because people could ask you that right now and say, well, what do you think about that? And what do you feel about that? It reminds me not too many months ago, I actually had, I did an experiment on Facebook and I posted an image of something that was on the surface, just a very obvious tragedy. You know, it was a human, it's a human tragedy. And I was curious because it's a human tragedy that, could be easily politicized and i thought i want to ask people tell me how you feel not what you think how does this picture make you feel and i was fascinated by the answers to that question because it made me realize i got a good mix of feeling and thoughts Mm -hmm. and what i realized from the experiment was there are people that don't know the difference between their feelings and their thoughts because i got many many thoughts and I was like, but this is a thought. And there were other people in that thread saying, he asked well, how we feel, not what we thought. They were even calling it out like, hey, yeah. dude, this is a thought. This is a this is a decision. It's a complex answer. That's your thinking. How does it make you feel? How hard is that, though? It is very hard because especially I grew up in a generation where the generations before us kind of told us you could only think, not feel. Mm. Like, it's not okay to feel. I know for a fact that my family, I'm from kinder, very country, small town. I was told plenty of times by people growing up, you don't need to feel. You just need to think Yeah. over and over again. So that resonated in me as a very young child. And it still is with me to this day that when I'm in an anxiety attack, I remember, uh, so I go to my i go to a therapist not, okay and it's really weird i've been going to the same therapist well it's two different therapists um but for about a year and a half now and about three months into it i had already gotten on my antidepressants i was taking great care of myself and my therapist was like do you want to just start going like every two months and i was like no like i want to be able to come to someone and talk like this mm. is just beneficial like i'm not even in a bad place in my life i just enjoy having someone like listen to me and my therapist told me that, and I was like, I'm still struggling with like anxiety day to day, and I don't like to take my anxiety medicine because I don't want to use that as a crutch. Like I don't want to like fall into that unless it's really bad, mm-hmm. which I mean I do sometimes when I, you know, have anxiety attacks. But something that was like very profound to me that my therapist said was like, when you're in this attack, I always thought I'd always make myself think like, why are you thinking this? Why am I thinking this? And then she said, you need to ask yourself, what are you thinking? Mm. Like call out this question, like tear apart what you are thinking. And like, that's where the feelings coming for. Like, yeah. So I'll be like, 
like yesterday, I had an anxiety attack. I was just driving around, running some errands for work, and I was anxious as can be. And I was like, okay, I'm going to have an anxiety attack at any time. And I'm just like ready for it. I'm probably going to get a good cry in. Mm-hmm. Like it's just going to be like all of a sudden. And it never came. And I was like, okay, this is actually more miserable than having an actual anxiety attack. Just like waiting for like that eerie feeling to just drop. And I asked myself, like, what am I thinking? And the first thing my brain said to was like, sadness, mm. not uh, feeling worthy enough. Like, and it was all these emotions and it wasn't thoughts. And um, well, not feeling worthy enough is a thought, but it does come with emotion. Mm-hmm. And it is hard to separate those because I know for my generation, it is, we are picking up this stick of mental illness and we're carrying this torch and we're blasting it out of the top of our lungs, like what needs to be done and what needs to be changed. But at the same time, a lot of us are also in the background, scared, not even believing that mental illness is a thing. Yeah. Like there's so many times I get on Twitter and people that I know are literally like, depression's not real. You just need to stop being sad. Yes. And I'm like, wow, that's very ignorant. But like, I hope you never have to experience this. That's right. It is interesting. I mean, I I hear that too. I hear people say that because if you don't have it and look, I'll say this, like for the most part, I would say I don't have um depression but that doesn't come without work yeah because and i and i bring this up on a lot of the episodes i'll tell you one of the biggest things that i ever studied and got into and practiced that really helped me and it's going to sound religious but i want to be clear with people who listen to this that this it is a religion but it is not religious in the way that i have utilized it to help me mentally is is buddhist practices i mean that is the, the the psychology of that whole structure of the teachings mm-hmm. has helped me watch my mind. And it's been a huge benefit to just see, to, to, to take a step back from myself and watch those thoughts. Because if I have thoughts of love, then typically I can generate feelings of love. I mean, those things are For tied sure. together, right? But when I have thoughts that appear that are negative, depressive thoughts, then I can have depressive feelings. I mean, I still have them. I mean, and that's that's the the thing. I mean, I there are many days a week. And this is going to sound like I'm depressed. I mean, I would just say it like I would have I, there are thoughts that if I could if you could record them and they would just get typed out and put into like a on paper for someone to read, they would go, oh, these th- this person's depressed. Mm-hmm. No, they are depressive thoughts. Yeah. But they're not generating the feelings anymore like they did, you know, 20 years ago, because now I look at them as as what they are. Yeah. Completely. You're, I see you. You're a thought. You're not me. And in that little dialogue right there, allowing that thought to not get its tentacles around my heart, I can sort of keep depression at bay. But, you know, I don't know that I have chemical imbalances in my mind. So I'm just having those thoughts. But there are people that when they have those thoughts, they may even be able to acknowledge, go, oh, that's a depressive thought. Mm -hmm. But But there's so much else going on inside of them that that it takes over the feeling yeah completely and so people who don't deal with that to just say you don't need to think that and feel that yeah (laughs) it's not it is a it's a struggle it's actual work it's it's a job yeah you've got an extra job to do and it's hard and i'm happy i know it i'm 
Look, as much as I enjoy talking on Find the Good News about making a change, I'd be less than honest if I didn't admit that change is hard sometimes. I should get more quiet time. I should exercise more, walk more, sleep more. And the one thing that I know I should do without a doubt is eat better, healthier, and fresher. But there's a wide berth between knowing something and actually doing something about it. I love to cook, but just like those other should do's, I don't always make the time. This is where I have to tell you about Fresh Fuel because it takes procrastination out of my way. Fresh Fuel is a fresh take on getting healthy, wholesome, and satisfying foods in your life as a kickstarter to critical change that lasts. When you sign up for a Fresh Fuel program at thefreshfuel.com, you'll find tiers for your specific level of can't get up and go. I know I found mine. My friend and founder of Fresh Fuel, Megan Abraham, wants to do one thing and one thing only. She wants you and your family to eat healthier, delicious, home-cooked meals. That's it. With Fresh Fuel, Megan has taken all of the I can't do it out of putting better meals in front of the people you care about. And she's quick to remind that one of those people should include you. Go to thefreshfuel.com and choose the program that's right for you. Megan provides you with the recipes, supply lists, links, videos, goals, and very important here, access to the Fresh Fuel Facebook group where you can connect with other fresh fuelers, real people just like you and me, making the same journey. What I love most about meal prepping with Fresh Fuel is that you don't have to do it alone. Megan is right there with you every step of the way, making the same changes you are. Fresh Fuel isn't a diet. It's a life change for those of us that just have trouble changing. Since I signed up for Fresh Fuel, I'm cooking more, eating better, and honestly, I'm feeling better too. I believe in Fresh Fuel so much that I asked Megan to offer Find the Good News listeners a chance to try it out at a discount. Just go to thefreshfuel.com, select one of Megan's signature programs, Fresh Fuel 28, the 28 Plus, or the 28 Pro plan, and then enter the code GOODNEWS to get 10% off your program. That's 10% off a Fresh Fuel signature program by visiting thefreshfuel.com and entering the code GOODNEWS. Fresh Fuel has been good news in my life, and I'm betting that thefreshfuel.com will be good news for you too. It is very hard. I know, um, I think it's really cool that you talked about uh, a Buddhist because my best friend from college who also suffers with mental illness and uh, she kind of just like loved me really well. And uh, when I was in my mental illness, she kind of like switched and started practicing uh, and taking a lot from the Buddhist religion about like how we manifest and we create our uh, thoughts and how that can attach to our feelings mm-hmm. and how they they are two different things, but they work hand in hand. Like, yeah, they like are, just like a molecule. Yeah, like they have to like they be together at all times to like actually make each other like work. And um, like I remember when she told me that, I was like, ah, I was like, whatever. I was like, I don't know about that. But like I remember like just how positive it changed her. Yeah, and I remember taking a lot from that, and just like when she would explain to me about like how. Like, obviously, I believe in, like, karma and, like, what you put in, you receive. Like, yeah, sure. the law of attraction. But, like, I just think I was at that point at the time. Like, I just had, like, this very, like, Catholic mindset that, like... Sure. I just need to pray about my mental illness. I need to pray, like, to God to make me happy. And that actually ruined my faith for a very long time. I can see that. And um, it wasn't until I got my antidepressants that, like, I got back into my faith. Because yeah. it was just, like, I got to the point where I was, like, look, if you're not going to help me, like, I'm out. Like... <laughs> 
Right. I, obviously, you're not real, so I'm out. Right. And um, that right. resonated and manifested a very overwhelming feeling and thoughts in my mind, and it created this huge, huge hole in my heart. And then when I got my antidepressants, and I realized that like my answers, my prayers were always answered. Like every time I asked, like I just I broke down in tears. Went to like the nearest adoration chapel and just yeah. like poured my heart out. It was Queen of Heaven actually, and just poured my heart out. I was like, you never left me. Like you were by my side. But it was just that like. When you're in these states of depression and when you're very anxious and you're just overwhelmed with these thoughts, like you can't have like an actual, like you can't process emotions and thoughts well. Like you don't have an actual like processing moment. Whereas like now when I am stressed or when I am like very anxious and like I do have those depressive days, I can pull myself out of them, not quickly or like sometimes those depressive days will last a couple days but i know i'm depressed like as soon yeah. as it happens i'm like ooh, these are some pretty dark thoughts like we need to yeah. like stroll away from those let's call up a friend or like go drive um to my parents house and just have supper with them yes and um so like i also like to journal as well like journaling yes. is a big part because i'm I externally, I process better externally. Mm -hmm. I cannot, like, if I'm inside my head too much, I'll literally force myself into an anxiety attack ah. because, like, I just can't get out of my mind. So, like, journaling is, like, the number one thing that I, like, work best with because I need to be able to hear what I'm talking about and I need to be able to, like, receive what people say back. So, mm -hmm. like, with journaling, I can, like, write down and I can read back and I can work out those situations and, I, and that's one of my huge coping mechanism is journaling and also music i love music i yeah. adore music and um that's just like music was really odd because when i was first in college and i was suffering with a lot of anxiety attacks it was just that as soon as i'd get very anxious i'd just put my headphones in and i would because i my like breathing would accelerate my heart rate and everything so i would like have to like kind of slow my breathing to the beats and just like focus on the music just to pull myself out and just like listen to the lyrics and that always like worked best but like it's just any time that I'm really stuck in my mind. And, mm -hmm. and I mean, I live alone, so like I'm in my mind constantly. Right. When you're by yourself, right. You're with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's interesting. Uh, this, this conversation's evolving in an interesting way. It, it's making me think, and you might find interest in this. And it's something that I, it's, I guess you call it a form of meditation and some people call it a type of prayer. But uh, I, I also, I wanted to say, I also am a confirmed Catholic and I also, it kind of in the same I get where you're coming from. Were you raised Catholic? Oh yeah. So yeah, I mean, what I have found, and I wasn't. So uh, when you're raised a certain way, you don't have an element. And again, I'm trying. This is apply to everybody, but I've sensed that that you don't have an element of discovery. About completely right, so it's just something that you accept and you're it's told. It's a narrow street, like it's this way yeah, or no other. This way. is how it is, and this is what you're going to do. And so when you hit a, uh, you hit a node in your life, like what happens where you're 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 dealing with depression and anxiety, and things are getting dark, and you're praying the way that you've been sort of taught to pray and to approach God, the way you've been taught to approach God, it sort of puts God out there as an other that's away from you that's going to give you something and then when you don't feel like you're receiving it then you don't feel loved and then therefore the beginning of and i say I always say that's the beginning of atheism right mm -hmm. there because then people go well if i'm not receiving this love that i'm supposed to be getting and i'm just hurting and you're you're the other out there that's supposed to love me and you're not do you are you even real and then so on and so forth and then you're even more alone 
And honestly, I think depression, I was thinking this as I was listening to you describe that. I was like, I just had this vision of like someone leading you into a front office and having an initial meeting and then they take you into the back room and then before long you're like 10 rooms deep and you're in a jail cell yeah and you know it made me think of depression anxiety as like a cult it has the effects of like a cult it brings you in and it shuts everybody else out Mm -hmm. and then you're all alone you don't need the people out there you don't need that you just it's just you and your depression and anxiety and it's kind of killing you for sure it doesn't want you to get help in a way and again there goes that that demonization of it it's like it's a thing an entity almost it It feels like an entity though but i guess back to what i was saying you know as a as a catholic that came in later I guess I approached it differently because I didn't wasn't taught it. Mm-hmm. And so I came at it from a different angle, but I kind of brought in the tailwind all these other things. So there's this form of prayer that's uh, from Tibetan Buddhism that I, I've practiced, but only in the last year and really hot and heavy in the last six months have I started to go, okay, I'm going to tune in on this because this is working for me. And it's called uh, Tonglin. And what that basically means is taking and receiving and then giving and sending out right and when you when you they call it meditation but it's essentially what we do when we pray yeah as christians and so the basic in in a nutshell the exercise is imagining yourself as your basic self with all of your fears all of your anxieties all of your pains just anything that's going on with you that you deem unlovable painful suffering grief whatever and you sort of envision yourself and then as that person and then it's almost like you're seeing yourself across from you and then when you breathe in you're actually all that stuff is leaving this version of you as sort of like this dark smoke right and you're breathing it in as it enters your chest and it gets into your heart it's actually there's it's you envision uh light and lightning in your heart and then when you breathe out you breathe out light into yourself and then okay. you see your other self breathing in this white sort of lightning and light and it's cleansing you of those things and you continue this process and the reason and then you eventually you you continue to expand that method to other people in your life you pray you you breathe in breathe out for them that way and then your community and then the world the goal is to ultimately generate compassion but it always starts with yourself and that was the hard thing for me because i don't love myself i mean that's just an honest the truth that's that's a bold thing to say put it out in the public but i just don't look at myself and have thoughts of love you know i completely understand i uh i never understood why I like lacked like self worth because I'm very confident. Yeah, I me grew too. up like in a school where I was popular. I was same kids I've known since I was like in diapers. I grew up with, and then I got to McNeese. Had plenty of friends. I was very well known. Like I'm very extroverted, but like no, like none of my friends knew when like I would actually tell them about my depression. They're like, we would have never thought like chance you're so confident like you're literally the light of the room like you're the one that like you're the center of attention you like carry conversations you make people laugh like like just because just because i have like an outgoing personality it was so easy for me to hide behind a big smile Mm -hmm. just like my true pain and like i've um i've actually learned a lot like in this last year i moved so when 2019 approached i told myself Um, Because in 2018, I got the help I needed. And I told myself, for 2019, you give yourself this year. Like, 
you move to Texas, like you do your own thing, like you make sure you know that like you can love yourself no matter what. And it was probably the best decision I have ever made. And it's been a hell of a year and a great year. Yeah. Positive year. And I've actually grown so much self-worth because, and I've like, and I wasn't, and it's nothing like, you know, my parents didn't love me enough. My parents are amazing people. I come from such a supportive family, a huge family too. Um, but it's just that like, it was something that I was lacking. It was all on me. And um, I'm not there yet, of course. You know, there are some days where I'm like, ugh, I hate myself. Yeah, like, sure, I get that. Yeah, like, this life is poop with me in it. But, like... Um, <laughs> yeah, I understand. <laughs> I do. But it's just, like, knowing that, like, I have the ability to love myself even when I don't. But I just have to remind myself that, like, I'm here. I'm worthy enough. Like, my favorite thing to do is, like, when I'm not feeling worthy enough, it's, like, to look at the cross. Like, that yeah. tells you enough. Yeah, that you're worth it, and then more. That's interesting. I I kind of do the same thing. I and I know there's a lot of uh, God, I don't know how to say it. Like I guess in the mental health arena, a lot of times you, your religion is sort of skirted around. But I think for everybody, I always say whatever you, wherever you can find your light, you know, wherever there's something. And and the way I, I always work visually for me, it's like a a picture of being alone in the dark and kind of feeling like I don't know up from down, you know, I don't know left from right. And I want out of here, but I don't even know which way to crawl to find the door. And then I just imagine a light coming, like someone just like striking a match or just a candle or something. And I go, Oh, oh, that's the place that for me is what I find in, in the cross as well. I, and, and I can just sum it up as hope, mm-hmm. you know, I just get this sense of a, a deep loving presence that is willing to come down to my suffering, whatever, however bad my suffering is, can come down to my suffering with me, not separate. That was that's a feeling that's terrible. That separateness, that out there, that it's this other that's away from you. But that presence of love that is willing to come down to my suffering and be with me and and just be with me is the beginning of getting out of that hole. Yeah. And that's what I find when I, I contemplate the cross because I see that being just there with me, you know, and it, it gives me hope. I contemplate the cross as like, um, like when I look at the cross, it just reminds me that like Christ was human and like, although like it doesn't say this and like most people like don't realize this because I know I didn't, I've gone like all over the country on like church retreats and national conferences. I've gone on mission trips. I've done a lot with Catholicism. I was on the diocesan core team in high school. And this thing I never linked together was that, uh, Christ felt every emotion that we feel as humans. Like, I just thought, like, oh, he came down, he was scared in the garden, he cried, you know, he begged God, like, I'm scared, but, like, if this is my will, it's my will. Like, there's nothing to do about it. But, like, he experienced so much anxiety. He experienced so much, like, depression. He experienced not feeling worthy enough. And when I was told that, like, I look at that cross and I, like, see, like, head down like arms spread wide open it's just that like he was so he was in the most purest human form of just like empathy mm. and um mortality and just complete just like vulnerability and mm-hmm. it's just like i look at that and i'm like okay like i can carry my cross because yeah. like someone did for me already like yeah. i can do this I, I i understand that it's that that sense of um the complete and total humanity of you know, I guess on one hand, when you look at paintings and 
we see like this sort of, I guess the only thing that comes to my mind is like the silver surfer, you know, coming down out of space, and yeah. all shiny and glorious, you know, and he comes down and people are just staying there in awe and he's just beautiful and shining, you know, and you're like, wow, what am I looking at? And I think there's that, but that image is not us. That yeah. image is this cosmic being that we can't relate to. It's not, he's not human, you know, but this this cross is very human yeah it's extremely human it's more human than i can even be i've never been that defeated and hanging down and that fully giving of myself and willing to submit and a hundred percent willing to be the lowest and the servant and all that stuff and so yeah that sort of juxtaposition between cosmic being and completely and completely yeah. human there's something beautiful in that and that's a beautiful spectrum i mean there's all kinds of color between there and i think as a person yeah if you you can find where you're at on that spectrum so 100 yeah that's a beautiful thing i wonder so when people come to nami you know they're bringing all kinds of luggage with them essentially you know how do you navigate that with nami i mean because you never know you know, mental illness has a broad spectrum. Speaking of what we we're talking about, a spectrum. There's a broad spectrum of mental illness, um, a broad spectrum of circumstances. You know, some people are bringing their religion through the door with them. Some people are bringing their atheism through the door with them. Some people, you know, everybody's got luggage. So how how do you navigate that with Nami when somebody just comes in the door and says, "I mean, I'm I'm calling Nami. I'm or and I'm called Nami and go, hey, I need help. What do I? What's going? What, what, how do you start?" Well, the number one thing I start with is always that, like, no matter what the luggage, baggage anyone has on their shoulders, it's always just resonated in pain. And if I can connect with anything, it's pain. I can connect with anyone's pain with mental illness. Uh, and, you know, NAMI covers pretty much every mental illness from ADHD to, like, schizoactive. Okay. So, like, we have, like like you said, a very broad spectrum that we cover it all. We have classes that pretty much focus on all, but we also have a huge library in our office of just nothing but literature of everything, like depression, schizophrenia, PTSD, bipolar disorder, borderline personality, like, all of it is covered. Um, and we even take it from, like, parents and teachers as allies, uh, like how to know like you know early signs of depression and suicide but the way that i handle when someone comes in or like calls it's just that i listen like i just want them to know that their voice is being heard no matter the pain behind it no matter the mental illness behind it that they are being heard and most of the time i can't actually like tell them anything like i can just tell them you know like um sounds like you or your loved one is suffering like do you, obviously they've told me their mental illness like and mm -hmm. i just kind of like give them little facts about that mental illness just remind them that like even though they have a mental illness they are human and they're feeling like feelings that you are feeling and like they have very irrational thoughts they're yeah. in a very manic episode or they're in a very um not like you know maybe they're like completely psychosed and they can't think properly and they're like not having rational thoughts at all but um I always just like make sure that like I just pick whatever they're talking about and like I just go over that mental illness with them and just like re-explain it to them because I can't sit there and give them advice because that 
I mean, I don't have a PhD by my name. Sure. I'm not trying to catch a lawsuit. You're just a person who yeah. cares, right? I mean, that's 100%. Ultimately. I'm here to advocate, educate, and support, and that's all I can do. I can advocate for you, and I can support you. I can let you know that you're being heard. I can educate you. I can tell you a little bit more about this mental illness that you might have just like this very vague thing that you read on Google. Well, whereas I have a whole library behind me that has tons of literature on every single mental illness times five. Mm-hmm. So I, and I've read all those. I've all like, I've made a couple. Me, I had to do this project with uh, a nursing student from McNeese last semester where they took um, three huge things that I sat down with them and they're like, what is something that like, you know, you kind of like struggle with in the community? And I was just like, mental illness in the youth and like mental illness with substance abuse and how they need to be separated. Mm-hmm. How like you can't blame people's substance abuse on mental illness all the time and you can't blame mental illness on substance abuse. Like they, they do correlate sometimes because people fall into negative coping mechanisms with drugs, but like not every person with mental illness has a substance abuse problem. Not every person that has a substance abuse problem has a mental illness problem. Yeah. Like substance abuse is a disease and so is mental illness. So yeah. like they're two separate things. And we actually do get a lot of those conversations but um, and they made these great pamphlets, and uh, we can just kind of just like reassure them that we have resources that like we can give to them, but they're always gonna have to take that step. Like they like we can't take that step for them. Right. But um, we get we get a lot of different like calls ranging from you know my brother or like my loved one is you know missing, like mm. he's been homeless oh. for a while, can't find him. Wow. And then something that NAMI also does that's really cool. We are in correlations with a lot of um, our executive director is head over about, I think I want to say like 10 uh, apartment complexes now. And it's from the elderly to senior living to mental illness. Oh. So like we have one apartment complex in Lake Charles called Maison DMEs. It's right behind Pappy's on Ryan Street. Okay. Yeah. And uh, that is for people with mental illness. And it's uh, HUD housing. Um, I forgot what HUD stands for. I think it's like housing urban development. But um, most of those people live there for very like little rent. They, I, see. I lead a support group there every second and fourth Friday for them. They come meet. I've, I always bring cookies and drinks, and we just I just want to know about their week, and I just like love to hear about their weeks. And it's really odd because that is also my favorite day of the week because I have mental illness. I like to go talk to these people and I like to hear from these people and yeah there's a huge age gap like most of these people are like 60s and I'm like you know in my early 20s but like the amount of love these people give me and the amount of like understanding and like I don't I barely talk like Mm. they usually ask me how my week's gone because I have to share but like other than that I just like sit there and I listen and I listen to how these people who are in their 60s have been battling with this some of them for their whole life and these are like more serious mental illness than I have like you know I have depressive disorder and chronic anxiety whereas like some of these have like you know bipolar and like they have to be on medication to keep their brain chemistry right and to keep them out of those manic uh, episodes so just being able to see that these people lived such good lives and had fun and they loved to their fullest extents and they grew and they like experienced things that like I think I'm never going to get to experience because I'm terrified that my mental illness is going to hold me back. But just to be able to see that, like that light that you said that people breathe, like from the, um, that Buddhist yeah. meditation. Yeah. Um, and it's really cool. And that's one of my absolute favorite days of the week, just because I don't know, I just get to sit and listen and, uh, man, how beautiful is that? I mean, I'm just listening to you. Uh, you said that, and just you referencing that, that form of meditation in that I, I get this picture 
of you talking to these people and you guys by, by, by talking and listening and just breathing light into each other. I mean, and, and doing exactly that you're, you're, you're healing each other. 100%. It, it, it does heal a lot. Yeah. That that's incredible. I mean, what the high value of just being able to listen you know, to people that, that just has been over and over again, a recurring theme on this show is that ultimately seems like it's one of the, it's a huge part of the good works that's out there is just having people who are willing to open their heart and their ears up to people and just be with them and listen to them. You know, it's just comes up again and again and again, the, the value of it. And, you know, I feel like, and I wanted to ask you this, I mean, do you feel like, a lot because I feel like we either we're hearing about it more or we're just or it is just becoming more prevalent is that anxiety and depression just seems like it's everywhere now in, in people that you just go that said oh I, I don't have this but now they're developing it even later in life and I just wonder what the connection is to the pace of the world I mean do you ever think about that do you ever feel like there's a like a big direct connection Oh, 100%. I think, um, although I know for a fact that, like, mental illness is mostly genetic and it is, you know, a lack of brain chemistry mm-hmm. and it can hit you at any point in life. Whereas, like, mine came out of a stressful, you know, I was overwhelmed with school. I was working 24-7 and I wasn't getting, I wasn't properly taking care of myself. And my brain chemistry was lacking and my serotonin was not, you know, reproducing quick enough. And I just fell into a depressed state. There's nothing that caused it. There was no trigger. I mean, now that I'm better and I've, you know, gotten everything balanced out, there are triggers that happen and it's just, but I think this world, I think a huge reason why I fell into my mental illness so quickly was because of like how much expectations on me as a man Mm. that this world put on me that like I had to be this huge lumberjack man that chops down trees yeah Yeah. but in reality I wasn't that like I wanted to travel I wanted to you know spend more time with my friends and like you know the world was telling me that I needed to go out and get a six-figure job so I can support this huge family and I was like I don't even like the idea of marriage like that's not for me right and um well I mean it is but like maybe like in my early late but that wasn't you know you wasn't like I have to you hadn't didn't have you didn't fit into that I guess the traditional checklist of what it means to be a man a man you know in the oh, world oh for sure and um and it's just that like I feel like a lot of generations are being told what they need to be and that puts a big stigma on us that sure. puts a big stigma on us as kids and it's not just men women too women are being told I know I have three sisters and I come from a very traditional family so I've always seen you know my mom stays at home wife like stay at home mom she dropped the kids off at school waited till we all got back from school had supper done our clothes clean laundry folded house everything and that is beautiful and that is a life for a lot of people but like my sister not a life for her my sister likes to work my sister likes to be active my sister loves to work out she likes to travel she likes to do all these things and I was the exact same way I wasn't going to you know be the breadwinner of a family because that wasn't in my path but the world constantly told me and I also think mental illness is affected more with social media Mm -hmm. I got to grow up in a generation that social media is our baby pretty much that is our first child my generation uh, unfortunately i'm early gen z i miss millennial by like a year which sucks <laughs> um because gen bottom gen z not good um, but we i know for a fact that my first experience with um 
social media when I was in like fifth grade. I had a MySpace. Wow, man. And That's I had wild. a cell phone and everything. And fifth grade. I, that was like, that form came in. I saw constant bullying. I saw constant body types that I needed to be, constant people that I needed to be, uh, videos that like would wreck my like world. And now like, and although I say all these negative things about social media, there is very positive things in social media, but anywhere in the world, you know, bad usually does outweigh the good. Or at least on social media, it does. Everyone wants to see the negative instead of the positive. Sure. But they will praise the positive at all cost. Um, but I know, like, now, as someone that, like, gets on social media with, like, I mean, I originally started with MySpace. Now, like, there's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, Vine. Well, RIP Vine. Yeah. But, <laughs> like, um, I check those five social medias, like, literally every five minutes if i'm like not at work or hanging out with my friends like i literally crave social media and it's it really and it's just affects. built into your being right like it's, it's a part just, of life yeah it's like eating dinner it's wow. like washing your hands yeah. before dinner like social media is what i check when i wake up social media is the last thing i'm on before bed and um social media is the number one way i keep in contact with my friends mm, yeah. um so it's like but there's so many things on social media that really tear down people. There yeah. are people that, because a lot of people don't like to hold their opinions. Sure. Especially when it comes to respecting someone's political or religious or any kind of belief. Yeah. Like, no one wants to be told that they're wrong. But social media takes that to a whole other level. Yeah. Social media has people that are across the world telling you you're worthless because, you know, you're agnostic. Yeah. And whereas, like, agnostic people are completely different from atheists like right. these people are very ignorant with their comments because right. they don't understand they don't even anything. know what they're saying right so i think it's true people get involved in these conversations and they don't really fully even comprehend what they're talking about it's mostly just opinion and half information they don't and um i just think it's like growing up like social media does have a lot of effect because there's so many times that i'm on twitter and it's like 1 a.m and my friends are like retweeting some really sad things and it's also weird my generation thinks that being sad is a cool personality trait and really yeah, so like, talk about that <laughs> people think that like being sad is normal or that it's like yes it is okay to be sad and it is normal to be sad but like people are out there like oh like they kind of want to boast their sadness they kind of want to boast their and, um, and does it is it like they to, to attract a response i don't know if it's to attract a response or just to be more like everyone uh because a lot of people will like i mean do you have a twitter i do but i use it see okay i know i'm a segue but i want to come back to this okay because I'm hearing what you're saying, and I'm totally down with a lot of this. But I, I also was guilty, even as an adult. I mean, I'm 45, right? So when you said MySpace in the fifth grade, I was like, okay, I was 30 when I got on MySpace. <laughs> so there's a huge gap there. So I had a big chunk of my life where that didn't exist, right? So that that me and my wife talk about this constantly. I said, you know, we've really only had this stuff... If you count MySpace for like 15 years, yeah, but you've had it your you know whole, entire your, life. your entire life, so it's much different. So we can remember we we can go into our brain and go, I remember when right mm -hmm. this didn't exist. So you have all this stuff y'all can't do that. So you, my son and I have this conversation all the time. He said, Well, I don't know what that's like, and so he'll ask me these questions like, Well, well he said, Well, what did y'all do or what did you? how did you get in touch with your friends? And I was like, man, it was just such a different world, you know, and I have those actual tangible memories to access so I can have a comparison. But as an adult, I, I actually had to get off for a couple of years because I was just dealing with grief and it was just not a good place to be. 
So I completely did sort of this clean slate thing where I just wiped it all out. And the only person I had that was connected to was my mother. That was it. And then when I was felt like I was healthy and ready to get back on, I made a conscious decision. And the way I'm going to explain it's going to sound like dehumanizing people. But what I did was the way I treat my Spotify playlists. I go, I like this artist because they make these songs. Mm-hmm. Right? So I started treating people that way. I like this person because they post this kind of stuff completely. And so I just literally was super picky. And so now when some, I get a friend request in the past, I used to be like, Oh cool. Another person is whatever. And it was just creating this giant mess in my life. Now I treat it more like that playlist thing. I go, well, let me go see who they are. The first thing I do now is I go look at what they post. And I'm like, dude, if they're posting stuff that's, not that I want to only expose myself to things that I agree with. I don't do that. I consciously seek out other viewpoints. But if somebody's just got a negative feed and it's just way out of alignment with my the things I want to put in my mind, I go, I don't know why they even want to be friends with me. I just go, did you even, they didn't obviously do the same research. And unfortunately, the world we live in, I always have this, it's a negative thought. It sneaks in and it says they only want to have access to me so they can challenge my viewpoint. That's the only reason. And as long as I don't invite them in, then I don't have to get in this bickering war. And believe it or not, the the couple of times I've broken that rule, that's exactly what's happened. I've I've seen where I'll post maybe something about us. something going on in the world that I think is I don't agree with and then mm-hmm. the next thing it's those few little ones I'll go oh well you know and then I'll get all the the negative comments I said well this is exactly why I'm tuning those dials man yeah just keeping it tight I'm keep <laughs> keeping social media tight and Twitter was one of those things so to answer your question I do have a Twitter but when I step back in I was with that one I was really really careful because mm-hmm. it's even worse than the other ones now. It used to not be so bad like a decade ago, but man, it's like I get my son's on it and I tell him all the time, like, you get in so many arguments on Twitter, man. People come in because they can come at you from everywhere. It's like getting sabotaged or getting hit over the head with a you know, a baseball bat and like while you're sleeping, you go to bed and wake up and four hundred people have come in there. You've got like eight hate crimes on you now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Social media is a weird animal. And I'm happy. I know it. I'm Do you ever hear a good song on the radio that just moves you? Maybe it stirs your heart, but then it starts to move your body too. Do people around you say things like, you've got rhythm, or where do you get your energy? Well, I've got a secret for you that might be your dance coming out, and the Whistle Stop Dance Sport might be just the job your dance is looking for. I know your first thought, but I don't have any dance experience. That's one of the good things about this opportunity. You don't need years of dance experience to do it. What Whistle Stop Dance Sport is searching for is a multi-dimensional talent. What does that mean? Okay, I'll tell you. You see, dance goes far beyond formal training, though that is a plus. Being able to dance means you can take life by the hand and let it put one arm around your waist and move to the rhythms that flow your way. 
To be a dance instructor at Whistle Stop Dance Sport, you'd need to have experience working with children, good rhythm, positive energy, and a personality for people. Dance Sport works to enrich children's lives by offering social, emotional, behavioral, and cognitive skills that naturally build confidence. Through dance, these children develop self-esteem, express themselves creatively, and strengthen critical thinking skills. Does the thought of affecting young lives in a positive way stimulate your mind, your heart? Do you want to do something that matters? Something that could really change the course of a young person's life? Then maybe that's why you heard about this dance instructor position with Whistle Stop Dance Sport. You can send your resume or letter to Whistle Stop Dance Sport. 1518 18th Street, Lake Charles, Louisiana, 70601. That's 1518 18th Street, Lake Charles, Louisiana, 70601. Training dates for this position start in July 2019. So if you feel you may be right, don't wait to send in your resume. If you'd like to hear more about this position, call Whistle Stop Dance Sport at 337-515-515. 7577. That's 337-515-7577. And if you do call, do me a favor and let them know you heard about this on Find the Good News. I I kind of I love social media because I do see the positives, but sure. like, I do regret being like I mean I can't control the part the uh, the generation I'm in, but like I got social media and so did all my friends and my whole generation at such an impressionable age. Yeah. So like I was in fifth grade and on MySpace and like ever since then I've had social media and like that's like the most times that I'm going to make decisions on my own. But like how many of my actual decisions weren't caused by like an argument that I saw on Twitter from my friend supporting something. Right. Like that happened so many times in high school and it's like. And it was really weird to get to college and to be in this liberal art degree because I finally got to actually have my right. own like choices, my own ideas. But I don't know, social media, like if you had the pros and the cons next to each other, they'd literally be tie for tie. Yeah. Like, I, I just don't know. I think you can use it. I mean, I really do. I that's well, honestly, I mean, heck, we're sitting here on this show. That's exactly what this show's about, is like just changing the whole thing. I mean, like saying, hey, what am I going to put out there? Yeah, you know, for if sure. I got a choice, I can choose to vote. Because, man, I mean, I'm like anybody, and everybody's got this stuff. We have uh, the seeds of dark and light in us, and I could let those seeds of dark come out. I mean, they do in private sometimes, but I, I just make a conscious choice to really try not to put that stuff out there. I don't want to be the thing that I'm trying to avoid, mm-hmm. I guess is the best way for me to say it. And I don't want to be ever be the cause of someone's mental trigger in a negative way that 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 would that disturbs me to be to to know that i would be adding to sort of that flow of things that could potentially be driving someone into a negative place you know making them devalue themselves or or look at themselves poorly because i know how easy it is to slip into that hole man i mean that's that when i was a kid one time i was helping my dad he was building he was he owned some video stores and he was remodeling one he was hanging shingles on the roof of this place and it was covered in uh visqueen and i remember i was up there with him he always took me up on the roof when he would do work and i would just sit there as a little kid but i think i was in junior high sixth grade when this happened and we were up there for some reason i was helping him do something and a big part of that roof was covered in visqueen and it had been raining 
And bud, let me tell you, that was the fastest I have ever fallen off anything <laughs> in my life. And luckily, it wasn't a high roof. But I mean, it was a blink of an eye. My foot slipped on that yeah. stuff and it was the slickest thing and the gravity just took me off the roof and i hit the ground didn't hurt myself i mean knocked the wind out of me but i remember to this day like that's my memory of had the fastest thing where my i was at the top and i was at the bottom and it was over and i compare that to how easily we can slip into that i mean just in a split second the wrong thought the wrong word the wrong trigger you know and I guess I wonder, I'd love to get your opinion on this. You know, you hear people use that word triggered and it's turned into almost like a jab now. Yeah. They're like, oh, don't get triggered. It's going to trigger. And it's like they're making fun almost. And I, I get it. I hear it. I get the joke. But I don't necessarily like it because, you know, it's a real thing for some people. People are making light by saying, oh, they're getting triggered because, you know, you used a plastic straw or whatever. <laughs> Which, I mean, hey, I don't, I'm, I'm one of those people. I'm not trying to get people to stop using plastic straws, too. But <laughs> it doesn't trigger me, but it's like they, there's that term out there. And I've, I've started to kind of really get a little cringy feeling when I see people do it. I'm like, man, there's actually real people out there that are struggling right now. And you're kind of making fun of their mental illness. Yeah. They got sure. a real thing. Yeah, so you see that too out there. Yeah, and I like, I like, so I know like sometimes when people are like being very sarcastic with like, oh, he's triggered, like just like yes. mocking him. Because there's this program that we do called the RAP program. Uh, Mary Ellen Copeland wrote it. It stands for the Wellness Recovery Action Plan. Uh-huh. And one of the main parts is identifying your triggers, and that's yeah. a very intimate part of um, the project. Because you have to really, you know, self-analyze yourself. Like, what gets me going? Like, what irritates me beyond belief? Like, and it's like, I know for me, my triggers are like the things I'm most self-insecure about. Yeah. Because I'm like, I kind of feel selfish when I'm triggered by like something so common. Mm. And uh, it kind of attacks me personally. And it really takes me, takes me down a level. But like, I don't know. I, I also... I guess because I have like a tough skin because I like to joke a lot. That, mm-hmm. Like I can I can take the social media jokes most of the time, but yeah. uh, do notice when people get carried away, and it does aggravate me. But I just usually tend to like mute those people or block them. Yeah. But with triggers, it's like I don't know. Triggers are very important with mental illness because you need to know that because for I don't know the first year of my mental illness, I did not know my triggers. I did not know why I was getting upset or so depressed so easily. Yeah. And uh, now I know why. And it, it honestly, I don't know, it makes life a lot easier knowing your triggers and being able totally to identify agree. them. Like you said, demonizing them and like being yeah. able to call them out, cast them away. Cast you out. That's right. And uh, <laughs> so like triggers are just so important with living with mental illness. Yeah. And um, just to know them and identify them. Well, I mean, there's so many comparisons to other things now that we're talking about this. I mean, even if you're an addict and you have an addiction, if you're, if you're an alcoholic, you know, if you're an alcoholic, you know that you probably shouldn't go to hang out with your friends at a bar i mean yeah. and be around an or an event that is uh, alcohol centric and if you're an alcoholic and you which and you and you have depression and anxiety you know definitely double you shouldn't do those things right yeah for sure so that's a trigger i mean for me it's the same thing i mean i was being again being candid i think it's important to do it i was just telling my wife that i said i get anxiety just going to family functions I mean, I get them just going when I know I'm just going, let's say the, here's, here's the difference for me. 
Um, if I'm just going to visit her mom and dad, no anxiety. But if we're going to a birthday party for anybody, mm-hmm. and I know that there's going to be a bunch of people there that I haven't seen in a while, I know that my for the first thing is going to be physical contact, lots of hugs, which triggers me. And I know hugs are loving and they're affectionate. It doesn't trigger me to hug my children. It doesn't yeah. trigger me to hug my wife. It's just not your love language. It's not. And so it triggers. And I, I mean, it just sets me into social anxiety. It started my anxiety kicks in the minute someone hugs me. And then when it happens again and then again. So then I'm triggered. My anxiety's up. And then here come the questions. How's your mama? How's your mama? How's your mama? How's business? How's work? How y'all busy? How the kids? And so I'm already in an anxious state. And because it's small talk and I know that they're only asking because they care and my whole body language changes. I get a little stone faced. I get a little stiff. I get short. I start giving more brutal answers than nice answers. Mm -hmm. Like if someone says, how's your mama? Normally I go, "Mm, she's okay. You know, I wouldn't get into it. But when I'm anxious and I'm trying to get them off, it's almost like I'm porcupining or something. I'm trying to get everybody off. So I go into the details, the dirty details, the details that I'm like, oh, you asked this question and you wanted a handshake. I'm going to give you the full dirty detail so you'll get off. Yeah. Because I'm anxious and I'm trying to get everybody away from me. Nobody knows that that's what I, that's going on like that rapid fire. And so then I just look like I'm not having a good time. And so then I feel it off of everybody else that he looks like he doesn't want to be here. And so then it becomes, he doesn't like us. And I don't know that anybody's thinking that I just, that's what's going on in my head oh, yeah. and this barrier is coming up and I'm going, I'm really just having a panic. I'm having anxiety right now, but nobody knows that's what it is. So it just looks like he doesn't want to be here. Yeah. He's not fun to be around. I get, uh, does that make sense? Oh, completely. I get, I remember my first, uh, Christmas after, um, like my parents found out about my depression and everything. And we had our big family Christmas and the questions came rolling in. It's almost like, I felt like with every question my family members were asking, it was kind of like a slap in the face to my mental illness. And it was uh, like, it was so stressful to the point where like, I remember I was like begging my parents. I was like, look, like I'm 22 years old. I don't need to go to family Christmas. And then I ended up having to go. And like the whole time <laughs> I was like shooting back wine. Like I was just like trying to kill me. it. Yeah. Like, I was hey, like, come know. on one more hour left. Like I went through a whole bottle. Like I was like just so anxious and it kind of upset me. And like, I remember when I was leaving, um, I was on the ride home and I was just like in my thoughts and I was just sad. I was like, when did, you know, like, when did my family get, make me so anxious? Like when did mm. these people that were literally like the first people to ever see me born, like make me so uncomfortable. Yeah. And it was just that like, because I was so nervous and so ashamed of my mental illness that they would actually ask me about it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like they did nothing. They loved me so well. They, they always loved me so well, but it was just like that thought in the back of my head that just like I can never shake like you said that like oh they don't like me they don't like want me here like they think something's wrong with me like why are they asking me this question like why do they want to know like how school's going yeah and that's just trigger 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 yeah Yeah. and so it's like really odd that like and it's really sad that mental illness can take away like the beauty and some of the like the best things in life it can yeah like it, it, it's something worth it's it's worth being a little sorrowful about. I mean, and I, I do. I I even you know, God's what's confession time when you start talking about this stuff because 
there's even a feeling that I don't like to admit, but it's an it's a feeling of resentment that I've noticed not a lot, but it creeps in when I'm around people that seem fine. Mm-hmm. I don't know where it comes from, and I don't I can't tell you that it's every time, but I definitely know it's got something to do with my inability to feel fine. So when I'm around people that seem fine in the same situation that I am not fine, there's a feeling of resentment that sort of builds. Like, how come you're fine and I'm not? I'm not. What's the difference? And, it, and instead of it being triggering an analysis of it, a healthy analysis, it triggers a feeling of resentment. I don't, I don't want to go too far into that to say that it's like a hate or anything. It's just like a mild repulsion. Yeah, for you, sure. You know, and I, I've noticed that. I don't like that feeling. I try to, it, this is one of the reasons I don't drink. I quit drinking several years ago. I mean, I wasn't a big drinker anyway, but I don't like mind contaminations. Like, I don't like things that make me feel uh, or think outside of uh, my standard mm-hmm. coming from the outside. Yeah. Because I can't assess what's going on in my brain properly. And I feel like that is a huge advantage for me to be able to catch a ball that's being thrown at me and at least be able to see it and say, Oh, I know what you are. I caught you because if I have a contaminant in me, an alcohol or a drug, uh, then I'm not seeing that thought properly and I can't catch it. And I feel like it's going to, it's going to worm its way in and just wreak havoc in there and just tear up all the work I've tried to yeah. build, you know, does that make sense? Oh no. Like, yeah, I know what you're saying about how like, um, it just alters like your moral consciousness. Yeah. It just like shows you like something is different than what it actually is. Yeah. But, uh, and that's like a great, I, I also just like don't drink that often either. Uh, mostly because I come from a family that like alcoholism is like our baby. Yeah. Like everyone has it. Yeah. Yeah. So I knew like growing up, my dad has been sober for my whole life. Um, so I knew that like I grew up in a very dry family. Like my sister didn't even drink until she was 21. There was never alcohol in our house. Uh, we did not go to family events if there was going to be liquor or beer there. So I've always kind of like kept like that. I mean, I do drink, of course. I'm 23. But, like, it's not... It's just, like, social. Yeah. But, like, um, I know a lot of people that, like, cling to a lot of um, substance abuse when it comes to mental illness. Just because, like, people find that as, like, their number one coping mechanism when it's... Like, in order for it to be a coping mechanism, it has to actually help you cope. (laughs) Like, it doesn't have to, like... It doesn't continue to bring you down. Yeah. uh, I mean, like, I definitely, like, I know when I was in college and I was suffering with my mental illness, like, it was, it was nothing for me to spend, like, four nights in a row at the bar. Mm. Because, I mean, what else was there to do? I was sad. My, might as well go be a sad boy at the bar. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't, don't want to be a sad boy in the apartment. Like, I'll just go and, like, hang out with my friends. And, I mean, I'm not going to lie. Like, I always got to see people I hadn't seen in a while. And, like, yeah, there's know. a social, a fun social aspect to it. Yeah, but, like, it doesn't, like, it would always leave more of an emptiness. Whereas, like, if I was really sad and I'd go, like, spend good quality time with my friends, like, at their house or where we just like you know watch tv and yeah. like that was more empowering than like going out but uh yeah it's it's i'm still like stuck on the fact that like like family is like such a trigger for me as yeah well. like that's so wild 
Like the the only people that are given to you in your life that like don't have to choose to love you because like they have to love you no matter what. Like, <laughs> right. Are like a number one like trigger for most people, and that's like many people with mental illness. It's like the that's people a huge that are trigger. closest to them. Well, I mean, I know that's kind of what you know. I would say even with my daughter and, and with depression, the way that kind of played out was definitely that way. I mean, it was sort of that classic scenario of the people that love you most and are willing to help you the most and be with you mm-hmm. through thick and thin you know, are the very people that sort of are getting shut out. Right. And then they're being replaced with people that don't care, you know, completely just don't You're just a temporary person in their life, you know, but it begins this cycle of shutting out the good, bringing in the bad. And then all these little doors, it's sort of like, kind of like something that's getting eaten out from the bottom, you know, and the top looks like it's okay, but everything's just falling apart underneath and it just gets bigger and bigger. You crack open the floor and you got a mound of termites in there that yeah. just destroyed everything. It was kind of like that, that scenario. And so, yeah. And then we become the very, the triggers It is the strangest thing. I mean, I, uh, but I get it. I mean, cause I, I sort of have that same thing too again, but I think, I don't know for me, it was always just social. It's all social. I don't know why it's social. I don't know where it came from. I really don't even know when it started. Cause I don't think I had that when I was, when I was young mm-hmm. and I mean, very young, I, I, I think it, it starts for me, my earliest memories really around junior high school and high school, you know, and I guess it got really more prevalent as I got older. Which is weird. You, you think you're going to get a bet? You'd get a better handle on it, but I just don't think it was acknowledged. Yeah, I think I probably just didn't know what was going on. Didn't have the tools, like you said. We don't. We didn't have the tools. Didn't have the information. And you know, when I was younger, there was no internet. Mm-hmm. You, know, you couldn't go, hey, let me look these weird things up and yeah. get some answers and you know it'll feed it back to you it was just sort of you just dealt with it internally or told your parents if, the, if your parents are even listening to that you know like you said i grew up in that world too where there was expectations of what our frameworks in place what's a man what's a woman what's your job what's our job you know how's that all supposed to be and those <laughs> frameworks are really good because they like like i don't i don't regret like my parents being very traditional because it taught me very good core values it taught me that like you know your family is always going to be the people you need to take care of most and uh i just like i don't know i'm part of that generation that like wants to you know tear down traditionalism and like build it up again but like (laughs) that's impossible we've been around for 2019 years 80 um so like it's not gonna restart but uh yeah it is it is like weird to know there's like so much it was like I like I, I remember of course as a kid experiencing depression. Um, I gave a talk not too long ago, uh, and it was all about how I w- I specifically remember like just waking up as a child in like elementary and just like something was off, mm. like something was not right. And I thought it was just like I was just like you know very intuitive because something would always like bad happen follow up. Yeah, and I thought I was just intuitive. Kind of thought I was a little psychic. But, like, as I got older, it got progressively longer. Like, it wasn't just, like, a day that time. It was, like, a week in high Mm. school. And um, so, and now that I know that, like, I've always had depressive disorder, that, like, I was actually, my brain chemistry was off. Something that maybe I wasn't getting enough sleep. Maybe I wasn't eating enough. Maybe I wasn't being active enough, which is wild because I grew up playing sports. Yeah. But at the same time, it's just that... My family has this genetic disorder that, I mean, everyone in my family has depression. Like, mm. 
my three sisters and I mean my little sisters my parents just adopted them they're only nine and eight but like I see it in them so much and my parents my grandparents my aunt and uncle like I just see depression in all of them and uh, a lot of anxiousness too but so it's just that like I did not have those tools yeah. Either. Like, I mean, I had internet, but it was more like dial up because it was like in the 90s. Yeah. But like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was, uh, I don't, like, I wouldn't have ever thought to search that. Like, right. this, it was just something personal. Like, I never told my parents I was sad. Even when I was depressed, I didn't even tell my parents. The person I was living with, uh, my best friend, my roommate at the time, uh, he kind of like, very jolly, joyful person, good soul, uh, kind of like got like it out of me how, what I was experiencing like how sad I was because it was like pretty there for him I'd come home and I'd like not moved off the couch for like the whole day and uh, I was just sitting watching TV doing nothing hadn't ate like nothing and he would ask me like what's wrong like why don't you talk to me and uh, this is one of my close friends uh, so of course I'd open up and um, like I never realized like just how much uh, like sadness I was expressing through like my actions my nonverbal communication and my verbal communication and it got to the point where uh, like this friend like um, he called my mom and was like chance is not okay yeah like, something is wrong like he's pretty and I like I told my I told him multiple times that like I was like I'm not suicidal don't think I'm suicidal I was like I never take my own life like I might be a little agnostic right now but I was like I'm not gonna chance it you're not there yeah you're <laughs> yeah. not at that stage but I have definitely lost my will to live like I wake up every day wishing I died in my sleep and mm. I mean I shouldn't have ever told someone that because that is pretty heavy especially when you live across the hallway from someone sure and um and i definitely didn't tell my parents that but my parents knew i was struggling because they just thought i was very anxious again and i remember uh he told my parents and my mom called me just she drove all the way from kinder to like charles just completely torn apart and she was like i think she thought i was like gonna kill myself in like the next yeah well i mean those yeah those words and, and the person's on there going this is like emergency. something's yeah. bad like something's wrong with him and like the next week my mom took me to our nurse practitioner and she was like um you've lost like 50 pounds you like when was had an eight in like two days and she was like you are like i was doing pretty poorly in school which was really my stressful because i was about i was about to enter my junior year so i like that was my internship year and like everything was like head on but uh i don't know it just took like i did not talk about it and it took you know i almost lost this friend because like the way i received what happened was like very negative like a lack of like just huge betrayal but it was also like this huge like reassurance of how loved i was by this yeah. friend and uh so like it just it took like someone seeing me at my rock bottom like completely like destroying my trust to like know like like i need you here in this life with me like you're my friend like I want to like be able to like be friends for the rest of our life, but I need you to be able to take care of yourself. And um, like I still like sometimes like get really like sick to my stomach about like what like when my mom pulled up to like Charles and like what like how she was acting like how sad she was bawling. Yeah. And I was like, this is not okay. I was like, this is not normal. Like this is very sad. But um, and I don't know like like you said like you didn't have those tools I had. Whereas like when I was deeper into my um, mental illness I had those tools I just didn't I didn't speak out on it and it's kind of it's kind of beautiful though because now I pretty much for a living I travel around telling my story and I yeah. tell them and I work with people with mental illness and it's just like this huge circle and it's like exactly where God wanted me to be and uh 
Because, I mean, I don't know how much longer I would have had on this earth if I would have stayed like that. I would have eventually gotten to that point where I would enough would have been enough. Well, you know, that's a beautiful thing. I mean, I thought this earlier in the talk when you were talking about going and visiting with those people that live in the apartments. You know, sometimes it's 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 it works out this way to where the very thing that's causing us pain becomes the very thing that is our gift, mm-hmm. you know, and we're able to utilize that and become that healing presence for somebody else and you know i think similarly to your story i kind of went through that i think i got lucky and i've said this many many times in different forms on the show but i went when i went through that initial depression in my 20s early 20s i didn't know it was depression didn't know what it was but now in retrospect all these years later i see it it's what it was it was a feeling of uh, why am i here what's my purpose you know, would anybody would would the world change if I were gone? You know, is my life have value? Just all those classic markers of depression. And, um, you know, I made one one simple decision that for me, everything tumbled into place. I'm not saying I had a charmed life because I haven't. But it tumbled into place so I could get a handle on it. And, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, it was and I took a retreat. I took a retreat and nobody knew why my mom didn't know my dad didn't know I did I said I'm going out of town and I did and I bought a notebook a composition notebook marble composition notebook and a pen and I was just going to start writing what was going on in my thoughts and I did do that that weekend and a lot of other things happened that weekend too that really changed my life but it just I got lucky is all I can say because there was no help. I didn't go reaching out, Mm -hmm. you know, and I found my place. I found my value again. I found purpose. I just had this one little thought and it was, well, if I am just going to keep doing what I'm already doing anyway, yeah, maybe I don't have any value. But what if, since I don't have any value anyway, I don't do that stuff anymore. What if I do something different? What if I just use my life? in wherever I end up being to just be better for other people. And I mean, have always done that. No, but that one little thought just changed things for me. It kind of flipped a little switch and sent me on a path, I guess that luckily put me in front of the tools, I think. And it wasn't back then. It wasn't counseling, but it was a lot of books. Mm -hmm. It was right around the time there was this huge self-help boom, you know, like in the mid nineties, it was just self-help books. And just every week, something new was coming out. Lots of spiritual teachers from all around the world were writing self-help books. And, uh, I just dove in, man. I just dove into that stuff. And I mean, it was a big help. And I just got super curious about my spiritual life and got super curious about my mental life and my feelings and, Hey man, it was a there's a whole world out there of that stuff, and it was it was great. I mm-hmm. mean, it was super helpful. I was lucky. I really was to have that stuff. Um, man, this has been really, really, really good. I've enjoyed our conversation. Same, it's been fun. Yeah, I didn't know. I I kind of didn't know what the framework was going to be. Um, and I feel like we learned a lot about Nami too. I mean, I I feel like now I have my arms around a little more, and if if I encountered somebody who was really just kind of going man i'm just having these thoughts and they're all the markers are there i could go look i i don't i can't tell you what to do i can tell you you can call nami though and they that you can talk to somebody and they can they can help you point you to some 
some resource. Oh, for especially sure. those groups, man. I've heard lots of other people know that I have heard about people talk about those groups, you know, and the, how effective they are, uh, just to go listen to other people. And, and, and some of those people I've talked to said they've even went back and become speakers at those groups. Yeah. We have a lot of uh, people that go through our programs and then come back to facilitate with us. And it's just like, huge reassurance that like these programs work because they are um evidence evidence practice related so like they are based on something yeah they are based on proof and uh which was another thing was i got to go to the national nami convention in seattle in june and uh it was really cool uh especially to see how many uh men are involved yeah and it was just like so many men that like elderly i mean i was probably the youngest one there but it was just like so many people were like coming up to me and I was just like so influenced and I was just like so inspired by all these people that like, I mean, like, uh, like right now, I don't know, like there's like most of the groups that I do, there's usually like two guys in there and like, yeah, they're usually the quieter ones, but like, I know they get stuff out of it, whether you're quiet or talkative in a program, you're going to receive some graces out of it. Um, but like, just to be able to see like the work that Nami does all around this world was just yeah. like so moving and beautiful. And especially to see that like it is represented by both genders, not just one gender alone. And, uh, because that was something that like, I know that like when I, when I reach for, um, programs and like I look for facilitators, I always, I always want a guy and a girl. I always want someone to be able to relate to someone. Like yeah. I don't want it just to be two girls or two guys. Like you have to have an equal gender, like, it has to be equal so if someone like both because i know like for me yeah it's easy for me to like relate to like girls but like i'm gonna like feel more comfortable if like it's a male speaker yeah like that's just that's typical same with females like they're always going to feel more comfortable with a woman speaker but um like nami is just so powerful and it's just so good and it's just we really like people ask me all the time like what nami is and there's i there's two things i could tell you i can tell you the history when it was founded what we do the five parishes we cover or i can tell you our mission yeah and that is to advocate educate and support for mental illness people affected with mental illness individually and their family members because that's what we do and the reason why i love nami so much is because uh i truly believe in our mission and you can't be a part of nami if you don't because you have to um, because this mission changes lives. It's changed mine and it's changed plenty of others. And it's just, it's good. It's good help, man. That's great. That's great. It's a great testimony. You know, I, I think everything you've shared has just been fantastic. Appreciate that. <laughs> and I'm happy. I know this episode's fishing for goodies. Fishbowl sponsor is Brimstone Museum and Henning Cultural Center in Sulphur, Louisiana. I don't know what you look for when you travel, but one of the things I look for when I'm putting together my itinerary is a unique museum or gallery in the city I'm traveling to. I do this almost every time I go to a new city, but if I'm being honest, I'm guilty of not always doing that very thing right here at home in Sulphur, Louisiana. That's really a shame because we have one of the most interesting, historically relevant, and culturally rich corners in any city in the country about two minutes from where I'm sitting right now. I'm talking about the Brimstone Museum and Henning Cultural Center. Have you ever really thought about why our city is named Sulphur? They've got a permanent exhibit on the history of the sulphur industry that answers that simple question and more. You really get a full scope of just how important the sulphur mining industry was to the development of Southwest Louisiana and the impact it had on the rest of the world. Yes, the rest of the world. 
On the same property, right next door to the museum, is the Henning Cultural Center, presenting some of the most interesting, modern, and culturally relevant local art shows I've ever seen. My dear friend Tom Trahan and the Brimstone Historical Society have really worked hard to give us this treasure, and it's a multifaceted jewel that I plan to take advantage of more often. You don't have to wonder what their hours are, or how to get there, or what shows are coming up. Just go to brimstonemuseum.org, like I did, and subscribe to their mailing list right there on the homepage. That's brimstonemuseum.org. Tom will make sure you start getting the announcements for each and every new show at the gallery. But you don't have to wait for the mail to arrive to enjoy this historical local treasure. You don't have to be guilty, like me, of overlooking a local wonder that conveniently sits next to the Grove, one of the most beautiful walking parks in southwest Louisiana. Drop in and say hi to Tom for me. Tour the museum and center, and make sure to tell Tom that you heard about Brimstone Museum on Find the Good News. Now, let's take that dive in the fishbowl. So if you listen to that last show, then you know there's a part of this show called the Fishing for Goodies, where we use this fishbowl right here. I'm down. You're down? <laughs> yeah? Uh, everybody worries about this part. It's the most fun. But basically, you know the drill. You draw three mystery cards or papers out of that bowl, and we'll go through them one at a time and just discuss what's on them. All right. Is this considered one? That is. That's a would you rather card, the bigger ones. Okay, I'm going to stop grabbing the bigger ones. <laughs> okay, I'll do a would you rather first. Would you... Start your own company, start your own religion. Hmm. Man. Do you know how often I talk about how I would love to start my own religion? Nah, don't. Tell me about it. (laughs) Just because, like, I don't know. I would definitely not start my own company uh, because I do not have great time management. I would start my own religion. Would you? But it would be like a spinoff Catholicism. Yeah? Like, tell me about it. It would. I'm fascinated by this. (laughs) So, like, I love Catholicism. I adore it. It's been my practice religion since, I mean, I was baptized as a toddler. But, like, I don't know. I just want, um, I love everything that... Catholicism stands for and I I love rules I love that we have like confessional I love being able to go get my absolution uh, being absolved and get my sanctifying grace but um, I don't know I just would like to start my own religion that just like preached uh, preached complete just like love and respect like mm. I'm so sick of people tearing down other religions like I strongly believe that like ignorance is bliss in a sense that like God if you're worshiping like like let's take Hinduism for uh, for um, a example. I completely believe that like they will be in heaven with me one day. Like, one hundred percent believe they're going to walk into the gates of heaven with me. Like they are good souls. They are good people. Just because we don't practice the same God, like God's not going to be mad about that. Like He literally says ignorance is bliss. Like if you are doing good deeds, like no one's there telling him that like which the actual savior. And, to be honest, we might be the ones that are wrong. Like, we don't know. I mean, I hope I'm not wrong. I don't believe that I'm wrong, but, like, you never know. And I just, like, I don't know. I have such a respect for every religion out there, even, like, agnostic and atheism, because I respect people's beliefs. Because people, people's beliefs are centered around experience, and they're centered around truth. And I'm not going to tear down someone's truth, because I don't want someone to tear down mine. God, you just said a mouthful <laughs> right there with that experience. I, I said this when I was in RCIA. And I don't mean this as a slight to, to, to anybody because we're all so different. But you, there is a difference between having a, an experiential relationship with God mm-hmm. and a 
relationship based on thought alone. And that was the only way I could just, that's the only way I can say it that I, and I could, and I, I've experienced both and I have found that a relationship with your religion that is just intellectual and not experiential does not generate the barrier breaking love that I am attracted to. Now that's just me. I mean, and again, everybody's different. You said it, but yeah, there is something about having an experiential relationship with your religion that draws you to this barrier breaking love. Mm -hmm. When I see fences and walls and, and I know you said rules and I don't rules that are meant to keep others out and some in and others out. When I see that kind of stuff, I start, I stop seeing God. Oh, for sure. I stop seeing that barrier, the barrier breaking mercy and love that just pours out and just sort of drips all over everything and soaks everything. That's what I believe in. I believe that love is what I'm after. Well, God is love. So I'm chasing. And no matter like God never says states in the Bible, he's not going to love you. If you're like tainted with sin, he's going to love you even more because he's going to want you to turn around and run to you. Like, like the, um, parable of the lost son. Like I love when, um, they talk about how his uh, dad throws a party for him. Like, yeah, like this, his son, you know, obviously the bad son that goes off, spends his money on like hookers and like pork and like works as a servant, like lives with pigs. But like when his son, when he, this dad sees his son, this old man, like runs to him and he's like, I'm going to throw you the biggest party in the world. Like no matter what is on your soul, like tainted it, made you dark. You are my son. And like, I'm going to love you through thick and thin. And I'm going to throw you a party no matter what, no matter what circumstances, no matter where you're coming from. Ah, see, man, see that. I love that. That's one of my favorite stories. And that, that is that it confounds us. That's what I love about Christianity and Catholicism and, and those, t- those particular parables right there, because they confound the human mind. Like mm-hmm. it breaks against what we've set up in society. Society yeah. and our structures and our civilization is built around checks and balances. And, you know, if you do this, then you receive a punishment. If you do that, you receive a reward. It's all just punishment and reward. Yeah. But that story right there confounds all of that. It takes all of that and just breaks the rules. And it says, no, you know, you get the same. Yeah. That's hard to comprehend because we don't want to live by that. We want to live by our cup of blood, right? I want my cup of revenge. I want my pound of flesh for your, um, your infraction. Yeah, for sure. You know, and that's hard. That's why. And the other one that just does that for me is the, the good shepherd, the 99. Oh uh, yeah. And, and goes after the one and we go, it confounds us. It breaks against the rule. It says, well, why would you do that? You're not going to do that. That's not how we're structured. It is how we're structured. Though. It's how we're made. We're all made <laughs> in the likeness of Christ. So like, yeah, I love that. I like that. I like, I like, those outer areas like that, man, that's a good, um, I mean, I, I'm with you too on the Catholicism thing because I find so much beauty in it. Oh, for sure. And so much to just be almost just sucked out of the bones of it, like just drink from it. But then at the same time, I run into these places where I, I feel like I'm hitting a wall and I'm like, and it's those places where I sense that, it's almost like a little line has been drawn. Well, God loves God's love over over here or through this and only through this door. This is the only way. This is it right here. You can't 
can't potentially be for these people over here or that person over there or it is for them as long as they're willing to conform yeah and be reshaped he gets into legalism and stuff like that and i just i don't know I, i'm liking where you're going with that man <laughs> i uh yeah i like i'm, I'm a huge liberal arts major so like my mind is like everywhere constantly and just like understanding like people's beliefs and just like just i don't know i just there's something that like i crave respect for everyone and um i desire it from people too so like i know in order if i'm ever going to get that if i'm ever going to receive it i have to give it constantly and uh and it's kind of weird because growing up i was a i was a little pos i was a little brat (laughs) so um like the person i am now like respect was not in my dictionary back in high school um i thought you know i was my my i was like the best of the best and i lived by that and you know and now i just like i'm glad i was who i was in high school maybe i'm not too glad about it not proud of it but um it definitely makes me the person i am today because like now i know who i don't want to be yeah right i get that for sure yeah that makes sense Man, that was a really good answer to that question. You know, I had somebody else actually drew that card um, not too long ago, and their answer was the opposite. It said, I don't want to start a new religion. I'm fine with mine. I'll start a business. So it was nope. nice to get that answer, and you'd be pretty candid about that. I oh, mean, yeah. You know? I, I don't think I could ever start my own company. Yeah, I like that, man. I mean, I, and it's, that's a brave thing to say because, honestly, traditionalists would not appreciate that answer. Oh, yeah, you I'm know. probably going to get roasted a little from my church friends for whatever yeah. you said. Yeah, it's okay to be a little brave in that regard. I mean, you know, uh, I said something one time, and I, I still stand by this, and I'll, I'll say it again, not because it's super wise, but it's because of what I believe. And, I, you know, we talk about the church a lot, and I said, you know, what if? You know, we, we were judging that on a human time scale. But, I mean, I, I, have, all, I have this book, The History of Christianity, that I love to read sometimes. And I, I look at it, and, and it eventually it ends. And it's like, and today in Christianity, and it gives you what it looks like today. And I said, well, that's, this is all just one human timeline. But what if on this other time scale that we just can't even comprehend, we're just kind of at the very front end of being born. Yeah. I mean, what if the church hasn't even fully like formed become, what if it's still being born and we're just looking at it? Like we're trying to get you know, the traditionalists would say, we need to get back to this and we need to get back to that. And it's trying to pull it in. And it's like, you're trying to put the baby back in the womb, man. Yeah. You can't do that. You and know, I it's, think it's growing up still. That's why I love uh, Pope Francis. Cause he does too, not have man. that mindset at all. Oh, heck yeah. <laughs> he oh, does yeah. not. He's all, he gave this talk one time, uh, and it was about like, you be the saint that's going to show up in blue jeans. And I was like, yes. You and gotta go where people are at. Man. Yeah. And, and, um, like my favorite thing to like pray on is that like, God's going to meet you wherever you are. Yes. Like, he doesn't like, he's going to meet you wherever you're at. And like Pope Francis strongly believes in that. And, um, like obviously they're like, he, I don't think he's the best Pope. Pope John Paul II is my guy, but like, well, Saint John Paul II. Yeah, yeah. The second. I don't know why I keep saying two, but um, I don't know. Like, he just strongly like. I don't know. I think he knows how to mold like the youth of the church. Um, because let's face it, the youth today is what the church is going to be in like another thirty years, and I That's think right. he knows how to mold their hearts and mold their minds to what this world is going to need um and it's all about adapting like yeah you're not supposed to be so secular and you're not supposed to be of the world but like 
you got to be of it while you're in it. You got to be able to know it to be able to beat it. And mm. like, you've got to adapt, like you've got to adapt to religion and the religion has to adapt to this world because if you really want to change lives, you've got to adapt. Yeah. I, I think of this and, and there's the, the, tra- the traditionalist would not appreciate this, but I'm going to use this reference, you know, do you watch horror movies and sci-fi and stuff? I'm a huge horror geek. Okay, so like you know, especially in these later movies like Predator and Predator versus Alien, right? So the way that Alien works, in the old movies they all look the same. Yeah, you know, they're all black and shiny and whatever. But in some of those newer movies, it's like, oh well, this one was hibernating in a dog, yeah. and when it came out, it was obviously still the xenophobe. Yeah, but it kind of had some of the traits of the other animal. And then you get the predator versus aliens. They got the one that comes out and it's like, Oh, it kind of has some of the traits of the predator. That's how, and it's so silly, man, but it's just like literally how I think of the church. The church has to be that kind of organism that it can go hibernate within a community. And then when it blossoms and it blooms, you go, Oh, Obviously, it's still the church, yeah. But it has the colors and the sounds and the textures of this community that it's blossomed in, and it brings in that culture. It doesn't say, "Oh no." I've seen that with Lakota Catholicism, which if you should check that out, you'd probably love that. But you know, Black Elk is kind of they're trying to, you know, he's he's in line to be a saint. Hopefully, maybe there's some efforts out there for that. But you know, Black Elk was one of those people that was like that, where now in his community you see Catholicism, but it's got all these native American elements and native mm-hmm. American incense and, and drums. And the traditionalist says, no, no, we don't speak that language, Yeah, but their community goes, why not? It's, it's, it's bloomed here. It has the DNA. I think that's a beautiful thing. Like blessed Giorgio Frasati, uh, he would go into the bars and he would, um, bet pe- he would hustle people in pool. <laughs> And be like, oh, I'm not good at pool, but if I win, come to mass with me. And then he'd beat them all. Wow. And he would bring people to mass <laughs> with him. And, like, I, I remember, because I used to struggle, because, like, the first time I ever heard Pope Francis talk about how he just wants saints to be, like, just regular lay people. I was like, that's not possible. Like, no way. But then, like, I, I kind of, like, found out who Giorgio Frasati was. And it was just like, first of all, this dude was my age. There you go. Like, very young. He was just like, you know, common guy. And he just wanted people to love God like he did. So, yeah. I don't know. It's just, you really have to, like, meet people where they're at because that's how Christ is going to meet us. Well, I mean, you know, talk, and, and I, won't, I don't want to, I won't beat it to death, but it's kind of even Pope Francis's name. I mean, talking about St. Francis, one of my favorite stories, and, and, and I'm assuming it's true because it's been told, called a legend, if you want, but is, is his first encounter with the lepers, you know. I watched a documentary about it and it just stuck with me the way they filmed it. But you see Francis kind of wandering, you know, it's like right after he's taken his clothes off and now he's sort of outcast. Mm -hmm. Basically he's left the city and he hears these the sounds of these sticks clacking together. And I didn't know this, but apparently, you know, the lepers, you know, they live together and they were sort of the outcasts, the worst of the worst, the dirtiest of the dirty. You didn't go near them. You'd catch their disease. And so that sound was, it was someone's job in the colony was to always to stand outside the colony and clack these sticks together to let people know when they heard those sticks clacking that you shouldn't come any further. Oh, wow. You stay away. The clacking of the leper sticks. And Francis heard that sound and he was drawn to them. He went to them. And so, I mean, 
it moves your heart and stirs your heart to know that he didn't run away from the yeah. sound of the lepers clacking. He ran toward them and then accompanied them where they were at. I mean, how how much how much beauty do you want to find in the human heart? Yeah, that's an yeah. immense amount. Yeah. Well, we 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 sucked that question dry. That was awesome. <laughs> What's your cooler dinosaurs or dragons? Okay, well I. <laughs> Dinosaurs scare me. Like, I am absolutely terrified of dinosaurs. I don't think they're cute. I don't think they're cuddly. They have been my biggest fear. Um, Really? My sister loved Jurassic World. Jurassic Park, my bad. Growing up um, back in the 90s and late 80s. Uh, I mean, I wasn't born in the 80s. But uh, I just, like, was terrified. Like, scared of dinosaurs. And mostly because I believe dinosaurs are real. And um, like just that thought of them remaking them in some like like foreign land, and them just kind of like, first of all, dinosaurs ruled the earth without any humans. Like they were top-notch predator. I don't want them to come back. And then like, I don't know. I've read so many articles about people cloning them in like Japan, and I'm like, y'all need to stop playing around with that. Like, clone a sheep, clone a dog, clone anything, but please, (laughs) not a dinosaur. Don't clone a dinosaur. Well, dude, I mean, you're you're right on with that. I mean, okay, when we go to the Houston Museum of Natural Science, I don't know if you've ever been there mm-hmm. but you know they got all those big dinosaur bones and i mean some of those i guess you can see them in the movie they're pretty terrifying because they look surreal but then when you go see those things up close and you're like terrifying what the heck i mean you don't stand a chance it's so terrifying just you nothing don't. that's just teeth and claws and just huge you know <laughs> and i i love dragons uh, i grew up watching dragon tales uh <laughs> <laughs> dragon tales i hadn't thought about that in a long time um and then i'm also a huge game of thrones fan sure so like just any idea of that i could get the chance to be Jon snow riding on the back of a dragon like honestly it's pretty cool and way better than being on a toilet and getting eaten by a dinosaur like they did in jurassic world you know what man there Park. was that movie uh i don't know if you've seen, seen rain of fire with Christian Bale, uh, or the dragons, it's set in like a little bit in the future. But basically, they actually found out that it's this plot is these guys in Europe were mining way down deep, and they actually awakened dragons that were in hibernation, like ancient hibernation. Oh wow! And they all come out and basically just d- destroy the world, and humans like live underground in tunnels and stuff because these dragons are out. I've not watched that, but I do love. Dude, Christian check Bale. it out. You'll love it. It's got him, Matthew McConaughey, Woody Harrelson. I think. Okay, is it, maybe I don't know. Woody Harrelson is like one of my favorite actors. I think he's in it. I'm I might be wrong, but I know for sure Matthew McConaughey's in it. He and uh, dude, it's a cool movie. It's like kind of a real like what if dragons were real. It's no fantasy, no like swords and sorcery type stuff. Really cool. I might have to watch that. Oh, yeah, check it out, man. It's it's a pretty good show. I liked it. And I don't know if everybody would agree with it, but I've watched it a few times. I thought it was fun take on dragons. It was kind of the dinosaur thing. It's yeah. kind of like oh well, what if you know they were. What would we do, like, really, as people, if, like, one day just some not big ass dragons are flying around burning right? crap up, you know? What if, like, a T Rex was in your backyard? Yeah, right. What are you going to do? Like, like, let's go for it. Like, you're really. Not outrun it. You can't hide from it. Like, yeah. It's just going to eat you. Like, you can't beat a dinosaur without, like, enforced military action. Like, nuke the place. Yeah. But, like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, dinosaurs, they don't do it for me. Awesome. A good answer. Would you rather be poor all your life, have a lot of money, and then lose it? Hey, you know what? Draw another one. That is the worst question. How does that keep coming out? There's so many. People keep drawing that, and everybody hates that question. I love would you rather, too. This is another would you rather. This has got to be better than that one. 
Okay, would you rather play every instrument or speak every language in the world? Oh, wow. This is so hard because I have no musical talent, but there's one language I would love to learn, and it's American Sign Language. I like crave oh, wow. desire to know ASL. But like, I don't know. I would definitely want to... I would play every instrument because there's no way in the world I'm learning Mandarin. That's like the hardest language <laughs> in the world. <laughs> but like, I don't know. I would definitely play every instrument because I love music like i said it's like my number one downtime i'm constantly listening to music and i can't sing and i can't play guitar or violin or piano or anything or drums and i would i would love to be able to play guitar or actually i would love to be able to play piano yeah man i'm i'm kind of attracted to artists i don't that do that i wish i could play more instruments i play a few but uh I attracted to artists that are like that. Like I love sting and like, he's one of those like lifetime artists for me, like even since I was a kid to now. And, you know, I'm amazed at the, the number of instruments he can play and the different types of music he can play and compose and styles. And I'm always just fascinated, especially to watch go on YouTube and just like yeah. watch him play live different it's places. It's so natural. Yeah. Yeah. How? Yeah. Just the you know, they're just like a, an artist. I mean, it's all yeah. you can say is you go, wow, it's, you're just a good artist all the way around. Talent and yeah. it's like hard work, talent too. And such a love for it. That seems to be a love. There we go again, bringing it home. That's the component, man. Love it's, is everything. It gives things life. Love yeah, I love the that. Best part of life. So you got one last thing, and it's not in the fishbowl, but this is something new that we've been doing on the show. It's called Better You in a Box. So this isn't a challenge necessarily for you and me, but it could be. But this is mostly for the listeners. And okay. so what we want to start doing is giving people a challenge. It's something they can take away from the episode, even though there's so much to take away from this one. But it's something that they can potentially challenge themselves to do uh, over the next week or in the coming months. So that wooden box right there, this is Better You in a Box. So all you got to do on this one is just draw one thing out and we're going to read it out loud and it's going to be kind of like our potentially take this challenge in our lives and for other people <laughs> well uh, sign up to volunteer for a nonprofit. hey i work at one you work at one so you don't have to do that that actually came out in another episode as well yeah and how has this happened i'm gonna tell you the odds are against people drawing the same cards you have to draw another card i'm gonna have to yeah because you're already in a nonprofit. All right. Do something today that will make someone say, wow. Hmm. I do, do need to get my hair cut. Uh, <laughs> wow. But you got you know, to do something extreme, though. Yeah, I'm going to have to get like a mohawk. You know what would do it, man? Shave your beard off. I did that like three, like probably like a, a month ago. Oh, wow, it man. shook. Oh, yeah. My friends, because I hadn't, like, as soon as I moved to McNeese, I was like, I'm growing out my beard. Because yeah. I never thought growing up, like, my family, the men in my family are not that, like, hairy. Yeah. But, like, so, like, in high school, I didn't shave until I was, like, a junior. And that was just because I was like, I'm just going to shave my mustache. It yeah. wasn't even there. But, like, <laughs> I didn't, I never thought I was going to have facial hair. And then I got into college, and it was just, God was like, psych, you're going to have, like, facial hair like a prophet. So, <laughs> like, I just started growing it out. And, um, like, I shaved it not too long ago. And I was like, my friends were like, I haven't seen you without facial hair. Like, and it's years. a shock. It'll make them say, wow. My mom, my parents, like, <laughs> freaked out. Okay. Like, they were like, Jesus, that doesn't look good. And I Dude. was like, wow. <laughs> like, calm down. I, I went through the same thing. And, I've, and if you do end up listening to more of the show, you'll hear me talk about it. But I have this weird, um, and I don't know where it comes from. Maybe it's just from watching my thoughts too much. But this sort of disassociative thing going on where when I look in the mirror, I don't necessarily associate 
mm-hmm. the person that I see. It's strange, but um, so I've done these little experiments where I will shave my head, <laughs> and when I shave my head, it triggers me into that state, right? And it, it like almost makes me think better. I get clearer. Um, and so I'll shave my head and I won't recognize myself. But then after I do that for too many months, I settle into it. I get comfortable. So I need to do something else. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll shave my beard off or just things like that to kind of trigger that reaction. So, yeah, I get that. But it does give you a wow. Sometimes it does it to yourself because you're like looking at yourself going, man, I don't look like I don't, I don't look, look right, right anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like something's off. So this has been really good, man. So I, I'm going to I'm going to try to take that challenge. I'll do something to make somebody say, wow, today, if I can find an opportunity. But what? What about um, what's the best way for folks to get a hold of NAMI? Like if they want to just get engaged and, and just get some help or, or con- make first contact. So the best way to get in contact with us is to call us. Um, we are open Monday through Friday. Fr- wow. Monday through Friday at eight to four. Our number is three, three, seven, four, three, three, zero, two, one, nine. Okay. Um, that is one of the easiest way to get in contact because we're always in the office. Okay. Like, we're constantly going to be in the office. Um, and the another way is you can drop by. We okay. love walk-ins. So really? We 100% like want you to come okay. talk to us. We'll go to the conference room in the back and like that way you can like lay your heart out on the line. Just be able to like be completely vulnerable with wow, us. Wow, like, that's know awesome, man. How we need to assess to help you. Because NAMI like... NAMI also does this really, like, one of my favorite things that we do is medication assistance. And okay. it's how, like, we uh, we will cover someone's mental illness medication if mm. it's not addictive. Like, we I see. we're not going to mess with benzos and volumes and stuff like right. that. Right. But we will, like, be able to cover your medicine if it's a little too expensive, like 150 a month. But uh, And we get a lot of walk-ins for that. But other than that, we do get a lot of, like, people, like, homeless people come into our office and, like... They mostly just want to, like, talk and, like, get to, like, just be heard. And, you know, like, we always have snacks and food. Mm-hmm. So, we'll always, like, supply refreshments. I'm trying to look for our warm line. Oh, what's that? That is a phone number you can call us. And, like, someone from NAMI will pick up, like, it's in case of emergency. Okay. I can it's, actually put it in the show notes, too, if you want. Yeah. I don't think it's on here. I don't remember it because it's not the same as of our... Uh, I might have to just message it to you. Later. That's fine. I'll make sure I get it in the show notes, though, so people listening, they make sure you check out the the show notes for the warm line. So the warm line is you're going to get somebody when you call it? Yeah, that is going to be like someone's going to answer and just, you know, talk to you about everything. Yeah. But Well, that's a good resource, too. And then you can just always email us at our general uh, i mean we have our website www.namiswla.org and then our email is info at namiswla.org and again nami is n-a-m-i so that's great that's great man this has been a lot of i mean i, I this has been cons- a blast it has been it really has <laughs> who would think that talking about well you know if you work in nami who yeah. would think talking about all this kind of stuff is uh is fun but honestly man it's healing right it is I so mean, healing yeah, well, we keep it in the dark, man. And I, how many things have you opened? I mean, the way I, again, to close it out for me, it's like you, you make a, a bowl of leftovers and you're like, oh, I'm going to eat that later. And then it gets pushed to the back of the fridge. And when you put it in there, you know, it was fine. Yeah. And then you open it up, you know, and you're like, oh, no. It's not fine. It's got mold and all this junk in it. And then you don't, don't want to have to dump it out, but you do and do the yeah. cleaning. That's kind of what it's like when we don't talk about this stuff. For sure. Sticking old leftovers in there just to we go bad. We get moldy. We get moldy. Yeah.
Thanks for listening to my visit with Chance Savant of NAMI Southwest Louisiana. If you liked our conversation and would like to hear more good news, consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash findthegoodnews. Share the episode on social media or leave a review. It really helps. Thank you for your support, for pressing play, but most of all, for listening.